Well, Russ, as you know, I'm someone who is a great advocate of lifelong learning. And I also feel like this podcast kind of uh, contributes to that. I'm still learning a lot about the jazz you uh, present to me and even classical music that I ordinarily probably wouldn't listen to, but do now because of this podcast. And you know what? This week I learned a lot and I even learned something today, right before this podcast. Today I learned that Madeira wine packs a real punch. (laughs) <laughs> I, I just drank some of this with uh, dinner tonight because we uh, we often do this podcast after uh, in the evening yes on sunday and uh i am really high on madeira wine right now desperately drinking my chinese tea oh. trying to come down from it so i can be <laughs> you know coherent wow for, for this uh fantastic podcast that we have tonight because we have some great music coming up yeah we do i'm pretty yeah. excited about all the recordings i enjoyed this week a lot yeah yeah and well, I got to say, you've got some very civilized recordings. All major composers. Yeah, today we have major piano week. composers. An, uh, an, a rarity here on the Adult Music Podcast right. for classical music, because I'm generally trying to expand people's um, horizons a bit. Right. But today we're going back to the classics. And so this is episode 115 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. We're focusing on piano and all European piano tonight. So that's going to set up our title. Before we get into that music, and we've got a few announcements, but I want to tell everyone that in the episode description, you'll find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss. And at the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming platform. You can follow us there at username Adult Music Podcast and also get the playlists and podcasts all in one place. If you can't see the full description or recording list on your app or wherever you listen to us, or if the streaming links aren't active, please check us out on our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen to us and tell a music-loving friend. If you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, it helps us get listed in the recommendations, which help us grow our audience as well. Also, you can follow us at Facebook. We've got a page over there with extra info. Put up a bunch of new jazz releases this week. You can leave a message or comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We're also sharing our audience with some other podcasts that we like, music-related. We've got Tom Gowker's podcast, Something Came From Baltimore, to Jazz Blues and R&B Interview Podcast, featuring interviews with well-known musicians and interesting themes every week. Also, famous interviews in Neon Jazz, that's from Joe Domino. He interviews artists, musicians, and writers. And we've got the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard. That's Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra who look at several versions of the same jazz standard each week. They play snippets from each version and discuss the history of the original and the different versions. Actually, I think that's every other week. I've got to correct that. And they're they give every us a other nice, week. Yeah, they give us a nice shout-out in the last episode, so we want to return the favor. If you want to uh, find out more about the standards, you know, these songs from the Great American Songbook usually come from Broadway musicals and they were the pop songs of the day and all jazz musicians know them and they still pop up from time to time. Even tonight, I'm going to have mostly original music, but there's a couple standards uh, in there, I believe. And it's good to know the history of those and get those in your head to help you uh, navigate your jazz listening. You know, help me with the adult music uh, jazz listening too, because we do hear some standards on this um, podcast too, except that they're always by new artists in our case. So they're kind of a compliment to us because they do older recordings. Right. They compare older recordings, and sometimes we'll do a new one too. Mm. Okay, so 
This week's uh, news, we heard from a few uh, people about our last uh, guitar-oriented episode. And in fact, you know, whenever we do a guitar, we should do more of these because whenever we do a guitar-oriented episode, we always get a lot of messages about it. I think there yeah. are a lot of... Um, you know, both jazz and classical guitarists out there who just don't get enough attention and really deserve a lot more. For sure. And uh, they're always really happy that we uh, talked about them. And um, I heard, or we both heard really, but uh, from the classical end, we get a lot of um, mail from the jazz artists. They, they tend to like that we talk about them. But the classical ones, we don't really hear from all that often. Right. But um, Elena Papandreou, the uh, Greek classical guitarist wrote back to us about our um, talking about the Manos Hajidakis album Paper Moon. And I want to re read to you what she wrote. And she said, thanks a lot for including my Paper Moon SACD. Now she <laughs> she wrote SACD right. and not CD because I think she wants to really accent that that's a surround. And it's a beautiful recording, by the way. And it does sound great in five channel, which I have in my house, thankfully. Although my the room I play it in is really too small for five channels, but um, that's okay. You still get the effect pretty well. And for all your very interesting comments and analysis, well, thank you, uh, Elena. The recording was indeed done in a church, which explains the oh, surround man. sound. So um, any ambient sound on there, it, it was a very direct recording and very clean. So mm. I really enjoyed that a lot. But we do get the back channel, the resonance from the church, I guess, as well. And you are so right that it would be great to include Never on Sunday, the most famous song of Hajidakis, you know, which I talked about, okay? Right. We had said, why isn't that on the album? Well, Elena Papandreou tells us, she said, I wish we could have included Never on Sunday, but unluckily, Manos Hajidakis was tired of the tremendous success <laughs> of this Oscar-winning song, so he forbade any other future recording or publishing of it. Wow. Okay, and she said, thanks a lot again, and then she wrote again saying that I adore Hajidakis and so much wish that he is more known outside Greece. So he can be now. Please pick up the CD or at least stream it. Yeah. It's a really enjoyable album. And Papandreou's uh, uh, playing on it is really just fantastic. She's got a lot of great effects and a really nice technique. Yeah, it's nice. She says, I realize that we should have written in the liner notes that the reason for omitting Never on Sunday from the uh, film Never on Sunday, directed by Jules Dassin with Melina Mercuri, was Hajidakis' own wish. Most people naturally will have the same question as you, why the most famous song is not on the CD. In fact, Orestes Kalampalikas has done a wonderful arrangement of that song as well, and only after he did it and I learned it, we were told that we were not supposed to include it. And she says, but at least I can play it in concerts as a bonus to the people present. So I would encourage listeners, if uh, Elena Papadreo happens to be playing uh, solo guitar, um, recital in your area to go see it and you might get uh, never on sunday by uh yeah. hajidakis as a um, as an encore hmm. she she ends her note by saying uh, to be famous was not hajidakis's wish he preferred to spend time with his precious and wonderful friends who were some other incredible personalities of his time now, my comment about the, i didn't write this to her i did write saying that you know the song will be forgotten and yeah well hajidakis he he's he's passed away now but while he didn't want to, this is my thought now, not hers. Um, so she's in, in the clear now. But I have a platform to speak, and I, w I think I'll use it <laughs> right about now. I feel like, yeah, that's fine. You're getting a lot of attention for this song, and you just want your other songs to be heard and things like that. That's fine. But I think for future generations, I mean, there's the danger that the song will just disappear from memory and um, if it's not going right. to be recorded. And that's a real shame. Because once, I feel like, once a song is out in the public, it's not yours anymore. A work of art, it's, it belongs to the public. It belongs to the culture now. 
and they're going to mm-hmm. interpret it and think about it as they want. So I, I feel like uh, that that song should be, um, you know, available to everyone again, especially to younger generations, because they're not going to know this song. People aren't going to see that film anymore, yeah. you know, especially now in this computer age where people right. sadly don't even like old movies anymore. I remember mm-hmm. I used to teach a course on black and white film. Uh, thinking no one would take it, but it wound up filling up and uh, people wound up becoming, because uh, young people now don't want to watch black and white films. They think they're just old. Right. They don't think of them as art <laughs> or anything like that. So yeah, I had to fix bad. that. Pre- that uh, I think that's what we're here for. We have to uh, fix some, some, certain uh, ways of thinking about things, you know, from right. these, these people who are just kind of trained by the computer, <laughs> yeah, by the internet. You know, there are things from the past that we know that are worth preserving and, uh, I can explain why. (laughs) In a lot of ways, uh, society today thinks it knows better than the wisdom of the past. And uh, as I've gotten a little bit older, I've Mm. realized that, uh, no, there are a lot of things that were the way they were for good reasons. Yeah. And uh, you threw out a lot of wisdom and really good art and other ideas uh, in favor of the new. So we don't want to do that. That's an idea called, that's known as Chesterton's Fence. And I'm not exactly sure how this goes, but basically it says if you're in a field and you just see this fence there and you don't know what it's for, the best course of action is to leave it up. Like, don't tear it down just because you don't know what it's for, because it's probably there for a reason that you don't understand. And people don't think like this anymore. They just think, oh, it's not serving any purpose. Let's just take it down. Yeah. And then you find out later why it was there. Exactly right. I found that out the hard way about a lot of things. (laughs) (laughs) And so so are younger people today, sadly, as it right. looks like it's going to happen. But uh, Anyway, I also want to give thanks to Jason Kaiser, who gave us the wonderful recording uh, Shaw's Groove last week, the music of Woody Shaw from a guitarist. And he sent me a nice long message with a lot of extra information about the arrangements of those tunes. And he's also going to send us a couple CDs. So we're really thankful for that. And he shared the episode with his... Uh, Facebook audience, which was really nice. So thanks a lot, Jason. And we'll be definitely seeing what kind of interesting jazz he comes up with next. All right. So now now we get to the uh, sad, weepy part yes. of the uh, podcast. Uh, we had a lot of uh, deaths this week. So play that theme, Russ, and okay. play it loud. Let me get over to the piano here. Okay, here we go. Now, yeah. where do I start? Well, I guess we should start with the, uh, I guess yeah, he is the oldest here. Um, in classical music, we lost um, pianist Menahem Pressler of the Bow Arts Trio. He died mm. at the age of 99 wow. on May 6th, a little over seven months away from his 100th birthday. I always kind of feel like 100 is a landmark. Like if I'm yeah. 99, I'm going to try to hold on to 100. But anyway, I don't want to say anything about that. Anyway, Menahem Pressler is uh, a well-known um, pianist who co-founded the Beaux Arts Trio in 1955 and mm. played with them for 50-plus years. So he really wound up becoming a lot of us um, classical music listeners, um, you know, part of our lives, really, and part of our uh, understanding of classical music because um, the Beaux Arts Trio recorded the entire piano trio repertoire. Right. You know, and um, that's how I got to know them, often through... Arts Trio recordings. Now, these days, everybody's recording. There are lots of trios out there. But um, back in the days of LPs, you know, orchestra recordings, solo piano recordings, and string quartet recordings were the big thing. You didn't really hear much um, 
piano trio like you do today. And um, so he was instrumental in my understanding of um, piano trios. I remember especially a a Boys Trio recording of the three Brahms piano trios. And that's really how I learned them, um, Mm -hmm. by listening to that recording. Um, The Boys Trio um, lasted until 2008, and Pressler was with them all the way. So that's more than 50 years at the piano. He intended to be a solo pianist and uh, made solo piano recordings back in the 1950s. But his career with the Boats Trio is what made his name, and it's certainly how I'm going to remember him. Um, So, Menahem Pressler, Hmm. rest in peace. Second, we lost the iconic American mezzo-soprano and soprano early in her career, Grace Bumbry. Uh, She died at the age of 86 on May 7th, just the day after Menahem Pressler. And uh, this is a name I remember from uh, very early opera recordings that I heard Back in my days in uh, working in uh, the NPR uh, classical music uh, department up in, at uh, WBOR in Boston, they had a nice uh, music library there with all these vinyl box sets. And that's mm-hmm. really how I started to learn about classical music recordings. I remember seeing her name there. Anyway, Grace Bumbry was a black American uh, mezzo-soprano and was a member of a pioneering generation of black American opera and classical singers that began with Leontine Price, I'm sure a name everybody knows, and including singers like uh, Martina Arroyo, Shirley Verrett, and the immortal Jesse Norman. Mm. Uh, she sang Carmen and many operas of the bel canto era, uh, Bellini especially, and Donizetti too, I'm sure, but the uh, notes I read uh, mentioned Bellini. Uh, speaking of which, we're going to hear like Chopin tonight, and he was really influenced by Bellini as well. And she also sang operas by Verdi and branched out into then-unknown territory, uh, internationally with performances in Janacek's Genufa. Now, this is a Czech-language opera. Oh. And at that time, you were only getting lang- recordings of operas really Italian, French, German, mostly Italian and German. And uh, just to, to branch out into, say, Janacek into more Eastern European operas at the time was a pioneering move, especially for an American uh, singer. Uh, she had a long operatic career, and she was from St. Louis. And she died in Vienna, Austria. Hmm. Not a bad place. <laughs> One of the homes of music. Yeah. yeah. Finally, um, we got a note from our friends at Naxos that uh, Michal Kaznowski, who was a founding cellist of the Magini Quartet, passed away as well. And um, I don't know how long he was with them. He was a founding member. And I'm not sure that they're still going. But I remember recordings of theirs from around the 1990s. I have a uh, Vaughn Williams uh, fantasy quartet and string quartet recording by them. So I just wanted to give him a mention too. Uh, rest in peace, Michal Kasnowski. We've got one passing in jazz this week, and that was the guitarist Jack Wilkins, who was born in 1944 and lived all his life and also passed away in New York City last Friday, May 5th, at the age of 78. And over his long career, he worked with a lot of musicians from Charles Mingus, Stan Getz, and even the Brecker Brothers. And one of my favorite recordings of his that I often listen to is called Merge from 1978. And this is kind of a putting together of two different sessions, but it includes uh, Jack DeJanet, Eddie mm. Gomez, Randy Brecker, uh, Michael Brecker as well. And I think the other session drummer on there was uh, Al Foster. And it's a really good recording. So rest in peace, Jack Wilkins. Yeah, boy, so a busy, uh, <laughs> busy yes. uh, opening of this week. Anyway, this week's theme is piano music. And as I said, 
we have three uh, major classical composers, and uh, this is, has been unusual for this um, podcast, but I really hope this is going to draw a lot of um, listeners. We get a lot of variety, of large variety of composers released in classical music these days, in- including the classics, but it seems to me not as much, or I'm not just going for those as mm. often. Major pianists will, of course, record them, but they tend to be branching out quite a bit these days, and up-and-coming pianists will be playing them. But um, we've got uh, some major names playing some major composers. And the first um, album I want to talk about this week is that uh, poet of the piano himself, um, Frédéric Chopin, whose music we, living in Japan, hear probably every day (laughs) because uh, young Japanese girls are always playing that uh, fantasy impromptu, the... uh, Right. <laughs> you know, which is a really beautiful piece. It's nice to hear them play it too. But uh, I feel like I've heard it one too many times. Now, I now I tend to I love Chopin's music. It's really beautiful. It's a little odd to me to my ear. I remember kind of saying when I was playing the piano, I I couldn't really capture a lot of um, the changing moods in Chopin's music. I didn't really understand them because he he has these really beautiful themes, and then he'll get into these really dark places, and somehow. I couldn't make that transition as a pianist, wanting everything to be beautiful as I did. <laughs> but uh, you have to be a person of mercurial mercurial moods to, um, I guess, be a classical musician. And <laughs> I guess I didn't have that. I could talk a lot about why I didn't go that direction. But anyway, Chopin. And the album is called Chopin, which kind of bothers me. It says, um, the pianist is Rafal Blechach. And he's a Polish pianist. He won the uh, 15th International Chopin Piano Competition back in 2005. Uh, he's now 37 years old. So he must have been a teenager back then. Wow. Yeah. He's 37 years old now. And this recording is of uh, Chopin's piano sonatas two and three. Now, this is on Deutsche Grammophon. And the Deutsche Grammophon cartouche just says Blekach's name. And it just says Chopin. So you don't know what's on the album, mm. <laughs> which drives me crazy. Anyway, this has become a a, uh, a thing these days. Like, they'll just put the composer's name. As the title, yeah. As the title, and uh, you don't know what's on it. And I'm not so happy about that trend because there are loads of recordings by these uh, composers. So let me know what's on the album yeah. on the album cover. Anyway, I wanted to do this one because, first of all, um, Blekach, he's a Chopin specialist, really. He plays right. a... He plays everything, really, but he plays a lot of uh, Chopin. Actually, I should say he plays everything. He tends to stick to the Romantic and the early Modernist era. He play, He has a Debussy recording, and I think... A, well, I know he has a Debussy recording as well, but um, he's done a lot of Chopin recordings. And um, the booklet notes, I have the CD of this, because I love both of these pieces, especially uh, Sonata Number no. 3, right. um, which has a really special place in my heart, which I'll explain when I get to it. Um, the booklet notes consist of a few of Lekach's thoughts on the works. He likes to program the second piano sonata with the nocturne that we hear on this album because of a similar feel that they have. And in fact, he's right. They do have a similar <laughs> feel. It was, it was another discovery for me. As I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I like to discover new things. So I learned something here. Now, the sonata's first movement has something in common with the nocturne. And then the Italianate bel canto atmosphere of the third sonata and the concluding Barker role that we hear on this album. So, of course, it's that um, bel canto feel, those beautiful Italianate melodies that the uh, third piano sonata has, but they're not sung, they're played. And, of course, I love the piano. I love the sound of bells, so I love the piano sound because it decays. 
and I just love Italian music, so it's it's really just hits me on every level. I really just love that piece. It's got its stormy sections too, though. But anyway, so so this is pretty familiar piano music, except that it's not because this is a, these are pretty unique interpretations, and they're not unique in the way that. Ivo Pogorelich's were last year on that recording we heard. That yeah. was really odd. These are supremely beautiful, but they're a little different than what you're um, used to. And I really want to get into that a little bit. I want to encourage you to hear this album because I was really, I was moved by it at parts and also really interested in what he was doing. Anyway, let's talk about this. Uh, piano Sonata Number no. 2 in B-flat minor, Opus 35. Now, this is the Piano Sonata with the very famous Chopin funeral march in it in the third movement. <laughs> so you should know that, okay? Why am least. I laughing? Because uh, Why Mrs. are you laughing? Because Mrs. Russ wasn't enjoying that when I was playing it. You know, um, She said it was too dark to be playing in the evening. But um, let's just say we didn't fast forward because it was sounding too good so it was and it was a little different than what we're used to and i'm going to talk about that when we get to it it's the third movement let's talk about the first movement first as um a a milne says in the winnie the pooh books it's probably best to start at the beginning let's do just that anyway this is marked grave and then doppio movimento which means like i guess twice as fast here this starts out with these um loud kind of octaves in the bass Okay, and they're left to sustain. And usually pianists will play these like at maximum volume and create this real kind of sense of presence. Blakach doesn't do that. He's less grand than I've heard in past recordings. Uh, I also should mention right away that my um, benchmark recording for these two pieces, the two piano sonatas, is uh, Polini's, Maurizio Polini's from hmm. um, the 1970s. I still have that album on CD. It's one of the first I heard of uh, these works and um i still love them and uh, in fact well i'll tell you what i thought about it at the end once once the theme starts it's fast and rushing very clearly articulated and recorded this is something that really amazes me about modern young pianists they articulate all the notes so beautifully you don't get this like wash ever like they're you know pushing the the uh sustain pedal all the way down and you just get this almost like uh you know, analog line. It mm. sounds more digital, like you're hearing all these like individual notes forming the line. Uh, that seems to be the style. And he does this so beautifully. Uh, the rhythmic sense is right up front, and that's very welcome too. I often say I'm always happy when rhythm is brought to the fore in classical music. In, you know, past times, it was all about the melody and the harmony, and the rhythm was sort of passed over. But again, younger musicians these days, I guess they're being educated into this, they'll tend to accent the rhythm. And we're more sort of um, uh, accustomed to rhythm, and especially in popular music and things like that, music like right. hip-hop and, of course, you know, of course, in jazz. But um, we're hearing a lot of that articulated more clearly in classical music, and it's something I'm really happy about because it's there and it should be, you know, part of the music, especially uh, when uh, the music are dance pieces you know, and Chopin wrote a lot of like Polish dances anyway the second theme when it comes up is played with maximum contrast to the point where it sounds like a chorale which means it's just chords like you're in church it sounds really solemn at the minute and 22nd mark when where the bass plays a repeated yearning motif while the right hand has a harmonized melody uh, the right hand is accentuated though the left hand is clearly audible um, the repeat is taken which is always a good thing, in my opinion. Uh, Polini takes it as well. Blekach is going for turbulence in this movement, 
and achieving it well. The second theme serves as a moment of respite. Now, Black Hatch plays down any drama when going into the development in the fourth minute, please. There is drama, but he's not really kind of making it histrionic in any way. It's, it's more, like a, more like a narrative the way he plays it. There's a bouncing bass rhythm that starts to serve as a continuing mo motif throughout as the right hand develops themes from the opening. Uh, this section is really fresh sounding, and that's something to say with a Chopin work because they're mm. so they're played so often. If you can get freshness out of this music, you're really doing something extraordinary. There's a lot of detail, well connected and articulated. At five minutes and thirty seconds, we hear the second theme in its new key. Uh, the change to the sonata's recapitulation of the opening material is not obvious, which made me want to hear the movement again, and that's always a good thing too. Like he's got that. Uh, how did he do that feeling? You know, how did he get to this? I missed it. You know, so I kind of want it made me want to hear the uh, the movement again. The repeated notes to the end are played very fast, but they're effective. The sound quality of the album takes in a lot of the natural reverb of the room. The piano is at a bit of a distance, so sound doesn't explode out of the speakers at forte sections. And uh, Blekach seems to play these down to an extent, matching them relative to the more piano sections of the score. Now, the, I said the piano is a little distant, but it's not so distant that it becomes a wash, as I said. You can hear all the detail. And Blakach is also very um, discreet with the uh, sustain pedal. He, he uses it really nicely. Second movement, scherzo. Blakach has a quieter, more measured way with the opening of this scherzo. This is really a new and unique interpretation of this movement, and really this sonata. He brings out a certain dance rhythm uh, in this movement that I was never aware of. And he does this by falling harder on the accents, on the downbeats, I would guess. On a minute and 12 seconds, the more lyrical middle section starts, and Blekach really shines here. He has a beautiful song-like legato, which is absolutely required for beautiful Chopin playing. And his shaping of the melody evokes the past. It gave me a feeling of empty ballrooms that were once centers of society. If you've ever walked in a deserted school, it's sort of that feeling except in an old ballroom. Mm -hmm. It has a haunted quality to it too. It kind of made me think of, um, if you've ever seen Stanley Kubrick's movie, The Shining, <laughs> The Overlook Hotel, it's completely empty. Yeah. I kind of had that feeling, the feeling of that hotel when listening to this uh, middle section. It's an interpretation that looks back on the past from a distance and perhaps Chopin intended something like that. You know, I think he kind of was thinking more of what had happened last night <laughs> at, at the bowl he was at. But now we're several hundred years uh, distance from that, you know, 200 years distance. So we get a feeling of the distant past. The opening repeats after that. Okay, the very famous third movement, the uh, funeral march, Marche Funebre. And this really is a vividly layered funeral march. Blekach gets a near-ideal tolling of the funeral bell sound at the beginning, and the famous melody is genuinely mournful and bereft in the way the attack is made and the way the volume gently tapers to lower volume at the mm. end of individual phrases. This is really beautiful. You have to hear the shaping of these phrases. It's rather yeah. unique in the recorded repertoire as well. In the forte extension of the theme, which kind of acts like a middle eight if you're thinking of like a song, um, I like the way, in classical music, I think it would just be A-A-B-A -A -A would be the structure of this uh, theme. I like the way the bass trills sound shaken out of the instrument. And once again, at the 2 minute and 31 second mark, the melodic middle section is given a rhythmic profile that suggests a dance. 
Here it's like someone retracing dance steps, perhaps a dance he or she once danced with the deceased. It's got a haunted quality to it, like a sad old memory. It's touching and memorable, and an absolute must-hear for Chopin fans. The middle section of this, this is where we get away from the, the trudge of the uh, funeral march. I'm already convinced anyone who loves Chopin's music has to hear this album. Now, the gentleness of the phrasing in this middle section is touching. At the 6 minute and 30 second mark, the funeral march comes back, and it's got a heavier tread in the bass this time, and crescendos more quickly, then decrescendos, as though the procession is passing us by. People often think of the funeral march as haunting or foreboding or even depressing. Uh, maybe it is, but here it's actually touching. This is a magical performance of this movement, and I think this movement is the highlight of the album. Hmm. Okay. The finale. This is a very mysterious movement. It's very short, and it's got a lot of figuration. There's no melody. I'm always curious to, as to how um, pianists will approach this uh, movement. Here it's played uh, cleanly with very discreet pedaling. I think one critic from Chopin's time described it as um, winds rushing between graves in a graveyard or like this howling winds like rushing through the graveyard. Um, I'm not getting too much of a sense of that here, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. Each individual note attack is audible, as are the crescendoing, decrescendoing waves of the figures. To me, after hearing this movement, it remains elusive and mysterious. And maybe that's the point. I don't think anybody's ever going to nail this down. I think it's just a mysterious movement, and you just interpret it as you will. All right, track five is uh, The Nocturne in F-sharp minor, opus 48, number two. Now, Blechach mentioned that he often works this uh, nocturne into his programs with the second piano sonata, and it's a good companion piece. It's quiet. It has a sad quality to it. And Blechach has a beautifully gentle touch in pieces like this. And he phrases with gentle emotion. The middle section gets a bit more dramatic in its rhetoric. At the 2 minute and 21 second mark, a chord-driven section begins. The chord's answered by tail phrases at the beginning. The opening repeats at 4 minutes and 40 seconds. The drama is done. Now the heartfelt dark melody takes over. There's a beautifully shaped falling melodic figure in the last 1 minute and 15 seconds of the piece. And similar trills as those heard in the sonata's first movement accompany the ending of the piece. So indeed, it is a good companion piece to Sonata Number no. 2. I have to say, Sonata Number no. 2 was never really one of my favorite um, Chopin pieces. I always found it a bit odd. But now, after hearing this recording, I really like it. It's kind of, a lot of its um, details really hit me more squarely in this recording, and I'm going to want to hear it again. The next um, work on the album, track 6 through 9, is uh, Piano Sonata Number no. 3 in B minor, Opus 58. One of my favorite works in the whole world, and one of my absolute favorite piano works. It uses a lot of this um, bel canto type um, melodic um, material in it, and I think that's what drew me to it. It's it's really song-like and a bit intellectual as well, so you have like that beauty and the intellect going at the same time. Anyway, the first movement, Allegro Maestoso. This has a genuinely Maestoso opening on the chords following the opening arpeggio ripple. Blekach plays this opening for drama. I love the balance between the two voices in the following section as the chromatic bass rises upward. This is a really complicated section to play. What do you accentuate? And um, Blekach has us hearing all three of the voices pretty clearly. For the second bel canto theme, which has a gorgeous lead up, Blekach plays quickly, almost like it's being spoken. So it doesn't really sound as sung as it does on, say, Polini's recording or others or the one by Evgeny Kissin, which is also good, ex except for one thing. 
which I'll get to. Lekach's approach is very expressive, but not in a lingering way. He actually gets through this material pretty quickly and leaves us with a solid impression of the architecture of the exposition. I've always loved the additional melodic material that starts at three minutes and two seconds, where it sounds like we're going to get a cadence, and then we just get more melody. It comes as a surprise, sort of like a little dessert to that melody. At three minutes and 45 seconds, the repeat starts, and I thoroughly approve of this. I mentioned Evgeny Kissin's recording of this, uh, and he doesn't do the repeat on his recording for RCA, and uh, that eliminates him for me, because <laughs> I like hearing that. Polini does do the repeat on his recording. I want to hear all these themes again. They're really beautiful. And you you definitely want to hear it again. It's all stable, and the instability of the um, development section is going to come and disturb you. So let's uh, spend some more time in uh, in paradise there before we're ejected from it. <laughs> anyway, there's even more drama on the melodies over the chromatic bass run at the 4 minute and uh, 43 second mark or so. What's interesting about the second theme in the repeat is the accompaniment, how certain notes in the bass accompaniment twinkle out of the texture as the gorgeous right-hand melody is being played. Lekach doesn't make a big deal of the transition to the development as Polini does with an emphatic bass note to signal it. Lekach underplays that bass note and simply launches into the development as though it's continuous with the exposition. It's a nice effect, and I do like um, Lekach's subtlety with the piece and with um, sections, uh, going from section to section. In the development at the 8 minute and 28 second mark, the bel canto-like material playing on the second theme particularly sticks out. It's beautiful, it's memorable, but rather quickly played. The recapitulation returns and we hear the second theme more emphatically played. You can hear that at about the 9 minute and 50 second mark, though it's still pretty quick. It's a good interpretation in line with the movement, but I'd like this to be slower so I can enjoy the melodic contours more. That said, Blekach does manage to get a lot of the beauty of the line out of his quick tempo, so I really can't complain. And the, the piano sound is just gorgeous here, too. The end is commendably not thunderous, but played at a moderate volume. The second movement is a scherzo, and it's played with very discreet pedaling. It sounds very noty as a result. There's no blur in the opening scale figures. We're already into the more bel canto-like theme in the B section at the 32nd mark. There's some foreboding quick clanging of bells as the music crescendos a bit, then settles back down into its quieter mode. This is a pretty quick scherzo at 2 minutes 32 seconds. Again, the ending isn't played with its usual thunderous volume. Lekach is pretty subtle with dynamics. The third movement, Largo, my favorite uh, movement in all of Chopin. <laughs> it's, I just love this with its gorgeous themes. Uh, the opening notes are more forte than fortissimo, after which the beautiful bel canto theme of the movement begins. Blackach can't help but accent the rhythm, bringing it more into consciousness. And makes, this makes me hear the piece differently, which I thoroughly approve of, I should say. The middle section, my favorite, begins at the 2 minutes and 21 second mark. The bass is subtle. Lekach accenting the arpeggios in the right hand, and therefore the chord and harmony changes. The very clear playing and recording allows a lot of detail to come through. In the repeat of the opening B theme, at 3 minutes and 37 seconds, there's a sudden terraced dynamic to piano, or to a very soft sound. I wonder if the unicorda pedal is involved, but it doesn't sound like it. It actually sounds like this is um, Lekach's touch. The clarity allows a lot of the changing, shifting harmonic detail to come through, in the movement, and there's another nice decrescendo that pulls the heartstrings in the fifth minute. 
At 6 minutes and 48 seconds, the A section returns, a bit more cautious and slow this time, as though moved by what it just heard. It's almost like it's another person and is like really blown away by the B <laughs> section. Anyway, the um, fourth movement and the final movement is the finale, Presto Non Tanto. The opening octaves are played at a slower tempo than usual, as is the more rhythmic theme that follows. So it looks like Blekach sped up the lyrical third movement and slowed down this one. It all comes across as something fresh and brings out new facets of the score, for me at least. As always, Blekach is careful to accentuate the rhythm. The rapid scale figuration is virtuosically played, even in volume and spacing between notes. It seems that the music has sped up here, and when we hear the opening theme again in the second minute, it has gained energy and momentum too. From 2 minutes and 57 seconds on, the speedy scale material is beautifully articulated and interwoven with the rest of the material. At 3 minutes and 36 seconds, the opening rondo material is heard for a third time. I'm not sure this is a rondo, but I'm, I think it is. Uh, this time it's very deliberately and slowly played. It's an interesting interpretation. It suddenly speeds up as it goes, though. And the approach to the end is fantastic, with all voices beautifully balanced at high speed. The final chords are satisfyingly emphatic, but again, not thunderous. And the final track, the uh, work that um, fits in well with Sonata Number no. 3, is the um, Barcarolle in F-sharp major, Opus 60. Now, a Barcarolle is a uh, Venetian boat song. It's kind of supposed to be a song that uh, gondoliers would sing as they were rowing their uh, gondolas. And it's always in 6-8 rhythm, which imitates the sound of the waves in the canals. Or the, you know, the, uh, they're not waves, but they're the water, let's say. It's got a very pretty opening, followed by the rocking gondola on the water accompaniment in the bass. Even the melody is played with some splashes in it, achieved by subtle accents on certain notes. Listen for that. It's a really kind of inventive detail. The accompaniment at 2 minutes and 57 seconds for the next section comes across as playful, but shifts into something more impassioned when the melody comes in. The opening theme returns in the fifth minute with much more decoration and some pretty difficult sounding but brilliantly executed trills in thirds. Oh, I can tell you, this is really hard to do. Um, the approach to the final cadence speeds up to the gain tension, then quiets and starts to unravel with rising trills, keeping the tension building. Some gentle splashy figures lead to the end, reached by a falling scale, and some final forte two-note figures. So in conclusion, this is one of those albums where the pianist doesn't necessarily play these works in the familiar ways I've come to like, yet he kept me compelled throughout. I'm not rethinking the works entirely, but I'm hearing many elements of them in a new way. In fact, this is going to be one of my go-to recordings of these works, but not my go-to recording. I'll get to that at the end. Lakacha's phrasing is sensitive to the point where it gently pulls on the heart, which is one of the things you want in a Chopin performance. Yet the darker sides of the compositions are clearly present as well. Uh, Lakacha has one of the most complete understandings of Chopin's various moods that I've heard. The tone in the more melodic parts has a real glow to it, as though it's coming, the glow is coming from inside the tone. It's really gorgeous, almost like it's like a light bulb with the filament inside. He also very clearly brings out the rhythm in all of these works, something pianists tend to gloss over in favor of the beautiful melodies. And that made me sit up and take notice. It gave me a different perspective than these works, as I said. In the end, though, I have to say, I still like Polini's interpretation of Sonata 3 best. Polini is often criticized for underplaying the emotion in favor of architecture in his interpretations, 
but I think he gets a lot more emotion in the details than Blekach does by paying attention to the architecture as he does. Now, please, Blekach also is very aware of the architecture in this piece, but it just comes across differently. Still, this is the Blekach, this album that I'm talking about now is an album I will return to and one of my top recommendations. And uh, perhaps I would uh, say the, uh, I'd say it's my second uh, interpretation behind the Polini, which has is a little old now, so the sound isn't as clear as uh, it is on this recording. But I feel like Polini gets the uh, Italianate melodies in the Sonata Three to really just sound beautifully, just by his um, shaping of those um, melodies, his tempo. I already want to hear these uh, this album again in order to get to know it better. So I would say this is highly, highly recommended and must a must hear for Chopin fans. Yeah, I enjoyed this one a lot. Right away, I noticed the tension to dynamics and also just in a general enthusiasm right from the start of the Sonata Number no. 2 and like this great fluidity of his phrasing. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that. I also noticed that his knowledge of this music is apparent in the arc of the performances. Yes. You know, he's thinking ahead and he knows this music inside out and you can pick that up because you're on a little journey. You're going someplace in each movement yeah. and he knows exactly the map to there. I really like the nocturne. I called it subtle and buttery. Yeah, it was oh, really buttery. flowing. Yeah. It's, it's pretty dark, though, I think. I don't know. Yeah, just yeah. the, the w- phrasing, though. But he mm. does dazzle in the speedier sections in the Sonata Number no. 3 with impressive technique and the dazzling runs in the finale. Yeah, I thought it was a great performance. I enjoyed it, even though I've heard this music a lot before. And the recording quality, I was kind of down on the Deutsche Grammophon recording we heard last week, but I think this is perfect. Yeah, the one we heard last week was the Fiatro on the guitar, the Baroque one. Okay, Visage Baroque. I thought it's that perfect balance of distance, getting the detail, but just enough of clarity and the room sound highlights. So I actually felt like I was in a nicely shaped kind of hall when I was listening to it. So the Sonics uh, get highest rating for me on this as well. Yeah, it sounds like it was in a a big uh, space that was recorded in, and it it was recorded at a decent distance, but close enough, you know, that you're not going to get too much of that, of that room sound. All right. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, everybody hear that. Now the next recording, speaking of a uh, sound, this one is, um, this is by, uh, Benjamin Grovener, the British pianist on the Decca label. This is called Schumann and Brahms. <laughs> That's the name of the album. We don't know what's on it. Yeah. It's kind of misleading. I wrote this. This should be called a lot of Schumann and a bit of Brahms. Yeah. I know. It's a little misleading. Yeah. Not only that, but it's not just, it's mostly Robert Schumann, but there is a piece by Clara Schumann on it right. as well. So uh, it's it's mostly a Schumann album. It should have been yeah, exactly <laughs> as you said, you know, a whole lot of Schumann yeah. and a little bit of Brahms <laughs> and something from uh, Clara too <laughs> in, the, in there. Yeah, I I remember earlier in the year we heard um, Beatrice Rana's um, album of Schumann's Piano Concerto and it had Clara Schumann's Piano Concerto on right. it as well, Robert and Clara's, and then there were some other works on there too. And it I kind of interpreted it as a love letter between the two of them. And we get a little bit of that here too, but not all that much. Anyway, the sound on this album was interesting because there's really no room sound on this. It's really just the piano. And it comes across really well, I'd say. I'm not really sure which um, I prefer. Uh, Do do we want the room sound on there or do we like uh, this kind of uh, piano sound better? Um, it's recorded fairly close, but um, there are some pretty loud sections, but they don't really pin the needles on your um, stereo. So it sounds uh, 
sound quality is really excellent. And part of the reason this recording is recorded so close is that, oh, Grovenor gets such a beautiful pianissimo. It's really stunning. Like mm. the sound is almost disappearing, yet it's there, you know? It's, it's almost ghostly sometimes. And he's, he's really a remarkable pianist. And this is going to be a remarkable album, everybody. Anyway, the three composers on this album are all connected by mutual admiration. Um, Clara and, Sh and Robert were, of course, married. And Brahms kind of came into the fold later as Robert started championing his music. And he became very close with Clara as well. <laughs> Brahms did. So um, pretty, pretty interesting. Anyway. Hmm. The, the album starts, it's mostly Robert Schumann, as we mentioned. It starts with a pretty big Robert Schumann piece called uh, Chrysleriana, Opus 16. And um, this is one of those works where you really have to know a little bit about um, 19th century literature to really get what's going on here. Johannes Chrysler is a creation of the uh, writer E.T.A. Hoffmann, who inspired so much uh, music in the uh, 19th century. He was a composer himself, but he was mostly a story writer. Think about um, Offenbach's uh, opera, Tales of Hoffmann. That's only one of many examples. I think Tchaikovsky did um, The Nutcracker comes from Hoffmann, the, the ballet. So he was a, a gigantic influence. Anyway, he invented this um, composer character known as Johannes Chrysler, who is an eccentric, wild, and ingenious musician. And he's in a, lot, a few of uh, Hoffmann's stories. So these Schumann works called Chrysleriana are fantasies that act as a kind of character study of Johannes Chrysler. And Chrysler, like the true ideal romantic composer, is very mercurial in his moods. He's calm, but he just can't keep that same feeling and his passion just bursts out and he has to just, you know, you get these really fiery uh, <laughs> moments as well. So this is really a picture of the uh, romantic composer at work in this. The piece is full of references to earlier music by J.S. Bach and Beethoven, uh, none of which I was able to identify, <laughs> but I never really studied these works. They're actually very hard to play. Uh, Schumann's music, if you've ever played it on the piano, it's, it's really a pain. It's not terribly pianistic. A lot of the melodies will often go into the, the middle of the piano and you're accompanying in the upper and lower end, so you're basically playing the melodies with your thumbs and playing all these kind of like arpeggiator figures with your fourth and fifth fingers and the bass with your, oh, it's crazy. <laughs> you know? it's, it takes a lot of work to, uh, to put this across, but um, Grovener does this beautifully. The movements are very mercurial, to say the least. And <laughs> it's a funny story about this piece. Schumann, Robert Schumann, sent the score to Clara Wieck, later to be Clara Schumann, days after she accepted his marriage proposal. So you got to imagine this. Hmm. He proposes to her. She says, yes. Her dad's really angry about it. She doesn't want him to marry this this loser and <laughs> who doesn't have a job. And uh, he sends her as like a gift this piece, Chrysleriana, wanting to bond with her apparently. And her response to him was, sometimes your music actually frightens me. And I wonder, is it really true that the creator of such things is going to be my husband? <laughs> We've all been there, haven't we? Yes, we have. <laughs> when people find out about your your weirdness. Anyway, this is a this is an eight movement work. Like the uh the moods in these works, the uh timings of them all are very different. Some are short and some are pretty long. The first uh, movement is called I don't even know how to say this, God uh, Bewegt. It's it's a uh, tempo <laughs> marking. 
Anyway, it starts with rushing arpeggios, and they're very harp-like. This really sounds like a harp opening on the piano. Uh, Grosvenor has a brilliant way of shaping themes within sections of music. The melodic thread of this abstract work is easy to follow in his interpretation. Uh, the B section quietens, and the accompaniment quietens even more, reaching gossamer fineness. So we're really hearing all of uh, Grosvenor's strengths as a pianist in this very short movement. I like the way he comes out in the B section via a crescendo back into the A section. Uh, the piano recording, as I mentioned, is very good without much room ambience and seemingly close, but capturing the louder sections with no problem. The tone doesn't have much glow to it, as it did in the Blackach recording, resulting in the bass being perfectly audible but not standing out. So the bass kind of in this, we, we've heard a few jazz recordings like this where it just sounds in the back somehow. He really plays the bass rather quietly and rather suggests that it's there rather than kind of emphasizes it. And that's really true for most of the album and the Brahms work that that changes a bit. Anyway, the second movement, Sehr innig und nicht zu rasch. This starts out a little slower and more contemplatively. It's very long too. It's almost 10 minutes long. This is uh, something that would become a typical Schumann and even romantic piano gesture, the way this uh, movement starts. It threatens a bit of wildness with the crescendo at the first minute, then retreats back into the quiet opening theme as if uh, Chrysler momentarily can't contain his passions. There's a full cadence at 2 minutes and 33 seconds. Then the music suddenly becomes manic with moving staccato patterns momentarily. The opening returns just after the 3 minute mark. Once again, the theme plays out to a cadence to about the 5 minute and 15 second mark. Then a stormier section is heard. The section ends in a cadence too. In the 6th and 7th minutes, the music after the cadence is extended and suddenly gains new life as it reaches the opening theme again. This movement would seem to contrast the uh, gentle and passionate sides of Chrysler's character. It ends gently. Movement three, Ser Aufgeregt. This has a sort of uh, hoarse cantering rhythm to it. This is another kind of much used um, Schumann rhythm. It's really kind of unique to him. The bass notes are struck hard by Grovener, but don't boom out of the speakers. The middle section is pretty and lyrical. Schumann often includes a section where his solo piano melodies are in the middle voices with accompaniment in both the lower and upper registers, and that happens for sections here, though it finds its way to the upper voice too. No surprise that Grovener balances this out beautifully. He's capable of supreme pianissimos in the accompanying voices. He has like absolute control over the uh, the terrace dynamics and the volumes that he uh, is able, of each um, level of sound that he's able to produce. At 3 minutes and 46 seconds, there's a full cadence. Then the opening cantering theme comes back. The movement has an explosive ending, nicely judged and executed by Grovener. Movement 4, Sehr Langsam. A slower, darker section, uh, which more or less continues without a pause from the previous section. It's a bit funereal in tone, perhaps with the Romantic era's constant preoccupations with death. We hear a lot of that in, we just heard a funeral march in the yeah. Chopin album, so more death here. A beautiful tone on the chords by Grovener here. There's a more lyrical section after the two-minute mark with lovely arpeggios beautifully balanced. Track five, Zer Lebhaft. Jagged staccato rhythms start the piece. By the 30-second mark, it straightens out a bit for the melody. Uh, the jagged rhythm becomes more deliberate after the one-minute mark that dissipates again into more straightforward song-like playing. There are some pretty startling fortissimo chords at the minute and 50-second mark, and after this... We hear the previous themes again, 
This section ends inconclusively. Movement six, sehr langsam, has a very slow, sleepy melody, gentle like a lullaby, but with shadowy minor to it. Uh, sudden fortissimo chords at the 52nd mark make sure that no one's going to sleep through this. Uh, the gentler material does come back, but crescendos and quickly decrescendos at the 2 minute and 20 second mark. There's a kind of restlessness communicated in this section with its frequent crescendos and decrescendos, energy followed by gentleness. It ends on a quiet note. And I have to say, Gravener, the pianist, is keeping up with all of these like quickly changing moods. Hmm. He, he really would have been... Uh, I don't know what he's like in actual person, but um, he probably would have fit in with the uh, romantics or been able to, <laughs> if he, uh, mm-hmm. judging by his playing, let's say. Uh, track seven, Zerash, has high speed and energy with figures as aggressive as in Chopin's revolutionary etude. Most of this two minute and 23 second movement is made up of rapid figuration. At 117 or so, there's a cadence followed by a chord driven quiet section completely contrasting with its gentleness and quietness. The piece ends this way on the quietest chord of this movement. And finally, track eight, Schnell und Spielend. Uh, This minor key skipping rhythm is pretty well known. It sounds like a kind of haunted dance or a piece of music that was made to serve that way. I like the droning bass notes, perfectly placed by Gravener. There's a stormier middle section that builds up to torrential harmony ringing out, then the dance returns. At a minute and 46 seconds, there's a sudden outburst in the bass, and all themes are played there. Grovener lets the um, piano tones ring out, yet never allows us to lose the thematic material. The haunted dance returns for the end. The entire work ends on two quiet staccato bass notes. All right, we get into some middle bits here. Um, track nine is um, a romanzen by uh, a set of three romanzen, I think, by um, Robert Schumann. This is number two of them in F-sharp, marked Einfach. Now, Clara Schumann loved all three of these works and laid claim to the set, and I'm guessing Robert responded by dedicating it to her, but the booklet notes don't say. And she especially loved this one, number two, which she called the most beautiful love duet. Uh, Left and right hand thumbs sing out the tender romance, and it was, in fact, uh, among the last pieces that Clara heard At her own request, it was played by her grandson, Ferdinand, shortly before her death in May 1896. So she ended romantically as well. Hmm. A very lyrical piece, it is, with subtle movement in the accompaniment. Schumann has the melody in a lower middle voice, really in the cello range. Grovener gets great musicality out of this range of the piano, which is not a really easy task. Tension builds up with the crescendo after a minute and 30 seconds, then the music quietens to the opening theme again. Grovener shows great tenderness in the very quiet sections and appealing sensitivity throughout. It's a shame Clara Schumann couldn't hear this. Track 10, Blumenstück by Robert Schumann, Opus 19. This actually really fascinated me. It's a set of theme and variations with two themes, the second of which only gradually emerges as the piece develops. Uh, The variations often run seamlessly one into the other. Actually, you can tell them apart, though. Schumann's themes are often easily identifiable by the accompaniment. Here the theme is given a bass and middle moving voice. There's kind of like a B section, which really is the second variation. It's going to grow in length throughout the piece. 
It gets longer, more energetic, and more involved every time we hear it. And Grovener allows the themes to ebb and flow with beautifully judged rubato. He's really a great rubato player. He's got that romantic sense perfectly. The, the way the uh, second theme grows each time we hear it reminds me a bit of uh, the second movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Now, we know the Fifth Symphony, the famous da-da-da-da one. Mm. The second movement is the slow movement. And in that movement, um, the first theme constantly grows. It's, it's really a set of double variations. And each time we hear it, the second theme grows. It's almost like a plant that's growing new branches and new kind of sprouts on it each time it's heard. And then the, there's a fanfare, which is the second theme, and it remains the same each time it's heard. So it's almost like the, um, the presence of the brassy, sunny second theme is... I, I think of it as sunny because I feel like it's causing the uh, first theme to grow. So you can think of it as the sun causing the plant to grow, or as you could think of it even in a bigger way, as God making the person grow somehow. Beethoven Fifth Symphony, second movement, listen to that. This is kind of similar to that, I think. By the fifth minute, we're hearing the second theme in a very long version. Uh, Grovener's playing makes this easy to follow via the expression he applies. At the very end, we hear the opening theme slowed down and coming to a freeze at the last three chords. I like the way it ends, too. Track 11, Robert Schumann again. He's all we've heard so far. This is the third movement of his Piano Sonata Number no. 3 in F minor, Opus 14. So I usually don't approve of this, having only one movement of a Piano Sonata. But this is here because it's labeled Quasi Variazioni, Andantino de Claravic. Claravic is, of course, Clara Schumann. Uh, the source of the Andantino is Clara herself. And the work uh, it comes from, we don't know. We, it's either hasn't survived or we just haven't found it. This remains uh, bleak and in the minor key throughout. Now, I'm not entirely sure that that's Clara's doing. Her andantino might not have been bleak, but Robert makes it bleak through his harmony here at least. It has a bit of a funeral march quality to it and is played with lightness of touch by Grovener. Beautiful balanced sound again. The variations begin almost immediately at the 52nd mark before we've heard the end of the preceding melody. At a minute and 35 seconds, there's a beautifully bright chord for the cadence. A variation with a scale accompaniment in the bass is heard next. The variation at 304 is appealing, especially given the ebb and flow of the rubato applied by Grovener. Uh, stormy agitated chords are heard in the 4 minute and 24 second variation with light tapering of the volume between phrases. Grovener has a lot of gradations of tone and touch, and he uses them expertly here. Uh, listen to the very light tone at the end of the final melody, followed by crashing dramatic chords to end the movement. I want to mention to any anybody studying the piano out there, a rubato is something that's kind of hard to catch, and it's used often in romantic music. You could do no better than listen to this recording to hear how it's done. I've never really rarely heard it so perfectly done as it is in these pieces. Rubato is a sudden, like, slowing of the tempo. So like, you're stretching it like it's like a rubber band or a wad of gum or something. It should sound rubbery, I think. <laughs> anyway, track 12. Robert Schumann again. How do you say 12? 12. I'll just say 12. I know Elf Zwölf. Klavierstück. That's 12. Zwölf. Klavierstück. Für kleine und große Kinder. Opus 85. For piano four hands. This is an arrangement by... Um, Grovener himself for the solo piano. This is number 12, the Abendlied, or Evening Song. Uh, this is the last piece in Robert's 1849 book of piano 
duets, which is labeled for little and big children. Big children would be people like Russ and I, <laughs> and you probably, listeners, if you're a, an adult listening to the adult music podcast. It's the most popular piece of the set and has been arranged before for solo piano. Uh, Clara used to play it at concerts and for combinations of instruments. There's beautifully vivid sound on this recording on the bass end of the piano and very sensitive touches applied to the melody, making it stand out in great contrast to the accompaniment, which continually draws attention in Schumann's music. Just the way the trills are taken after a minute and 45 is amazing. Sensitive, perfectly timed for the emotion required. This entire work showcases Grosvenor's sensitive touch. Track 13. Okay, we're going to change composers now. We have uh, Clara Schumann. Uh, her variations, Opus 20, on a theme by Robert Schumann. Now, we've mentioned that the Clara and Robert Schumann marriage is also acts as a musical mutual admiration society. Robert often setting Clara's themes in his music and Clara setting Robert's themes in hers. This is uh, Clara's uh, reply to Robert's variations on her music. The theme comes from the first album blot of his Bunte Blätter, and it starts tearfully but becomes more diverse in mood as the variations go on. We hear a chorale, a canon, delicate right-hand filigree, and stormy virtuosity, pretty much the gamut of um, romantic expression, and a quotation from Clara's own romance, Varier, Opus 3, in the left hand of the coda. The sadness of the theme is caught well in Grosvenor's touch and pacing, I'm wondering if this is harmonized the way Robert originally had it, or Clara has harmonized the melody for her own purposes. The first variation is sensitive and busy in the accompaniment, and rather brief. It comes to a complete cadence and a pause, as the next section is more jumpy, with repeated staccato chords supporting the melody. The variations switch between different moods, rather than making a line from sad to happy. Uh, the one at 4 minutes and 30 seconds is a slightly stormy with its rushing figuration in the accompaniment, and the one at 510 is loud and insistent. The variation at 640 is canonic in feel with its staggered melodies, and a rippling harp-like accompaniment characterized the variation at 7 minutes and 24 seconds. The ending variation seems solemn, and after that, at 1035, we have a brief coda extending the mood of the last variation to the end. Grosvenor, once again, plays with deep sensitivity throughout and offers a tranquil ending. Okay, the pieces I really wanted to hear on this album, Johannes Brahms, The Three Intermezzi, Opus 117. This is tracks 14 through 16. Brahms referred to these works as three lullabies of my sorrows. Yes, indeed, they are quiet and sad. And I played two of them. <laughs> I never played the second one somehow. Anyway, the first one, number one in E-flat, is very famous. The image I always had of this, and I heard this from a teacher, was that uh, it's like a, a calming song and you hear these um, two chords, and uh, the two chords, I was told, are sort of like a person sobbing, and it's like their shoulders going up as the other person is kind of comforting them with the melody. I've heard these pieces many times, but rarely with this kind of sensitivity. Now, my favorite perform I have a favorite performance of these two, and those are by Radulupu in a very famous um, recording of Brahms's um, piano music that he made, and he made very few recordings. I can confidently say, however, that I would turn to these as well. I would say these are the equal of Lupo. I'm not going to say one is better than the other. I liked both a lot. Touch, tone, and pacing define the performance, as has been the case throughout the album. I also like the way the slight change in tone at the new section at a minute and 24 seconds made me perk up my ears. He gets a compelling depth to the bass melody in this section. Listen, for example, after 2 minutes and 50 seconds. 
And the repeat of the opening at 319 sounds faster, but that might just be the contrast with the middle section. The tone and touch reign in this performance, and the false cadence at the end actually comes as a, as a surprise, uh, given the pacing, even though I've heard this piece many times and have played it myself. I was really startled by that surprise chord. So that's a mark of excellent playing right there. The second intermezzo in B-flat, track 15. Here the melody is front and center with Grosvenor's superior touch, making the accompanying lines clear but subordinate. The contrast is fantastically realized. Again, tempo is ideal. Tempo, touch, and tone all meld together into a fantastic performance. The middle section starts at around a minute and 10 seconds and is given a brighter tone profile to contrast it with the A section, which returns with a different sparser accompaniment when we hear it again much slower and darker. The last track, intermezzo number three in C-sharp minor, is another one that I really love. Actually, I love all three of these. I like the dark cushioned tone that Grosvenor gets in the opening unison line. The clarity of the line when the higher voices repeat the conclusion of the opening melody is very appealing and goes straight to the heart. The cadence at the two minute and six second mark is supremely sensitive in touch. The middle section is gentle with a bit of turbulence in the rhythmic ups and downs. At around 4.15, this section ends and there's a lead in to the opening theme. Grosvenor builds up tension with a teasing slow approach. He's very in the moment in this piece and I now realize in the rest of the album as well. The theme is shaped for maximum sensitivity. I guess I can imagine critics saying it's too much, but it's just what I like. I feel like every ounce of expression was squeezed out of this theme. Gorgeous ending to a fantastic album. So in conclusion, this is a beautifully played and interpreted album, and the program is compelling as well. Most of the music is either brooding or actively passionate, but there's a lot of nuance available in those moods, and Grovener projects more than you'd expect. This is a very different approach to what we heard in the List album we talked about by Grovener two years ago. It's more focused on the touch and tone, and also the moment, although the whole structure is there too. But like in the list, it makes the more macro level form clear, even though these are shorter pieces. These are near ideal performances of these works, and I can't say that in the case of the Brahms that I prefer Lupu, although I'm not going to give up that recording. Uh, this goes with that for the Brahms pieces. As for the rest, this is going to be my go-to performance. Yeah, I really enjoyed this recording as well. Just the phrasing and variety of his playing. It's sort of uh, episodic going through the program, but he brings out all the contrasts in there. And as you say, I'm mostly impressed with his phrasing and fluidity, but also the different emotions he pulls out of this music. I really liked the uh, Brahms as well. I thought it was a kind of fluid and dreamy performance of these works, really good. Definitely check this out too. I always enjoy listening to Schumann's music, but I don't think I've heard as satisfying a interpretation as this one. I would say that as well, yeah. And just for uh, listeners on streaming, this has actually got 27 tracks because the pieces with variations, the variations are separate tracks. <laughs> yeah, so, they're not on the CD. Not I heard on the this CD, on the yeah. CD. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, I'm generally not a big fan of Schum Robert Schumann's music, but it really it's really up to the pianist to make you like it. And yeah. I think uh, Grosvenor does just that. I mean, I've never really heard a performance of the Chrysleriana that I really enjoyed as much as this one, although I've heard some of my favorite pianists play it. And uh, he, he, they just kind of give you a sort of 
you know, real feel for its shape and bring out certain qualities of it that really make it appeal to you. I wish I could play like this guy. God, he's really good. <laughs> you haven't heard anything by him yet that I didn't really enjoy. Yeah, neither have I. And in fact, I've been with him like from the very beginning. I remember his debut album. It was like a Chopin and Liszt and I forget who else was on it. But it was like, it was a long time ago now, long before we uh, started this podcast. <laughs> it was probably over 10 years ago. But that was pretty great too, even though he was really young. But he's only matured as a pianist since then. So I'd like to hear him do a full uh, Chopin program. Maybe that uh, piano sonata number three. I bet it'd be amazing. Yeah. Anyway, third um, piano recording. Man, we're really going long today. <laughs> it's not just the classical, but we, uh, we had a long opening too. I'm noticing the time here. I'm like, wow. Okay, so my third album of this week, my third piano album, is by a uh, composer who we don't really associate with the solo piano very much, except in his famous piano concerto number one. That is um, Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. And here we're going to hear Yevgeny Sudbin, the uh, Russian pianist, one of the world's great yeah, pianists, in fabulous. fact. Yeah, play his own uh, arrangement of uh, Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet tone poem. And the album's called Romeo and Juliet Tchaikovsky on the piano. It has a proper name. Thank you, <laughs> Evgeny. Okay. This album also um, features his daughter, Bella Sudbin, on the primo piano in some um, forehand pieces. This is a Beast album, and it's on SACD. Ah, and Sudbin is a really good pianist to hear in surround because he's got a gigantic sound as do many Russian composers. They had, they know some secret over there of how to get the pianist to sound as loud as an orchestra. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. Anyway, we'll get a few of those big, booming chords. This one's going to come out of your subwoofer, definitely, when you uh, and your lower woofers of your speakers when you listen to it. Anyway, just to begin, Sudbin says of Tchaikovsky, listening for hours nonstop to recordings of Tchaikovsky's music was how I was first introduced to classical music and fell in love with it. It's a nice story. To this day, I am not certain that I can think of any other composer whose music displays the rawness and vulnerability of human emotions to a similar degree. And Sudbin also wrote the booklet notes, which contain a personal take on each track, which makes the album feel more personal. I would say it's recommended reading if you can get the uh, CD or the SACD. I never mentioned this, but I should say... I keep saying it's an SACD. Now, if you only have a CD player, that's no problem. The SACD will play in your CD player. SACDs have three layers. One's for the CD player, one's for an SACD player two channel, and then there's the third layer for SACD five channel. Well, usually, yes. There are some SACD only CDs yeah, but that I have. Those aren't released by like the major companies. They're more specialist right. sort of thing. So if you're going to get anything on the Beast label or anything we talk about on this podcast, it'll, there'll always be a CD level on it. There are companies that do specialist SACDs that are SACD only, but uh, we're probably not going to be talking about those <laughs> here. That's a little too specialized for us. Anyway, this uh, Tchaikovsky album starts with a piece by uh, Mikhail Glinka. <laughs> This is a the overture to his uh, Rusland and Ludmila opera, arranged by Evgeny Sudbin. And he included this because he said the piece is often used as an opener for concerts featuring Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, a very famous piece that Sudbin has played many times and has a great recording of, by the way, on SACD as well. In his arrangement, Sudbin has added some extra textures for the fun of it. So he's added a bit which is not going to be a, a happy thing for purists, but I don't mind this because we have the orchestral versions recorded. We're cool. 
he did this because um, he's heard it so many times in concerts where he was playing in. So he decided to uh, come to terms with it, I guess. And right away, we get some big booming chords followed by flowery arpeggios for the opening. You can use those opening chords to adjust your volume <laughs> this album, how loud you want it to be. This comes across as from the classical area in this arrangement. It sounds more classical than romantic. The sound quality on this SACD recording is magnificent. Full-bodied, the bass end of the piano is well caught. Uh, forte chords explode out of the speakers and may even blow your hair back. Um, I don't have that problem anymore. <laughs> that is not a problem. Anyway, it doesn't sound like it's from the romantic era in its sound, though. There's very little sustained pedal used, and detail is well caught. Sudbin has given himself a lot of detail in the arrangement right up to the spectacularly flowery ending. Great performance. And then we get right into The Waltz of the Flowers from the Nutcracker yeah. Ballet. Very famous work. This is for Piano Force Hands. And Sudbin arranged this to play with his 12-year-old daughter, Bella. She's playing the... Um, she's 12 years old. <laughs> Keep yeah. that in mind when you're listening to this. Um, she's playing... Um, he arranged this to play with her during the COVID lockdown. I guess when they were very bored. He's added an occasional, he says, jazzy element to his arrangement. I wouldn't consider anything I hear in this jazzy, though. The hands often intertwine in this arrangement, and he and his daughter had fun performing it. Yeah, one of the cute things that happens when you play like Mozart forehand pieces is that there's like a moment where the upper and the uh, primo's left hand and the secondo's right hand have to kind of intertwine. So you're kind of like arm in arm while you're playing. Right. It's very cute. It's a good thing for uh, boys and girls to do and get together, you know. <laughs> anyway. uh, Sudman's playing the the secondo here, the bass end, and he's given his daughter some flowery additions to the score up at the top end. And she's got quite a technique. Yeah. <laughs> she's 12 years old. It's amazing. Once again, Sudman is discreet, is discreet with a sustain pedal, which I appreciate. You know, the secondo plays the sustain pedal. This allows ripples in the arpeggiated accompaniment to register fully. Yeah, generally, by the way, if you're playing piano four hands, it's, it's almost like dancing, like the man leads in the dance. In four-handed piano playing, the man gets the, uh, the bass end, so he plays the harmony and uh, controls the pedal. And the woman gets the really pretty parts up uh, front, the melody, the part everybody's listening to. It's really interesting how that always seems to happen. Hmm. The famous melody gets a lot of embellishment in this arrangement, and as long as we understand that father and daughter are having fun here, it's an enjoyable listen. Probably not for purists, though. It's not the most elegant arrangement of this piece. Uh, Bella has some lovely scale runs after 2 minutes and 30 seconds. Some of the material positively bursts out of the speakers, fortes are played explosively, and there is a bit of romantic rubato and scalar embellishment in the arrangement. The duo manage an exciting approach to the ending chord. All right, now we get to some uh, solo piano pieces by Tchaikovsky that I've never heard before because um, you just don't hear these too often, and we probably should. This is called a Dumka, Sen Rustique Russe, Opus 59, composed in 1886. And we see a lot of movements by Dvorak labeled Dumka. It means thought. So it's kind of, I guess it's kind of like an improvised thing. A dumka is a form of folk song with instrumental accompaniment, and it comes across as a rhapsody, this particular piece, uh, meaning that there's kind of a theme and then it just goes off into unexpected directions. In fact, uh, Tchaikovsky wanted to call this piece Rhapsody. It's, it's a pretty virtuosic piece. It starts off meditatively and slowly. A rippling figure at a minute and 24 seconds takes us out of the meditative section and into something dreamy with a theme. 
the transitions are indeed rhapsodic in nature. At 2 minutes and 33 seconds, a new theme starts brighter than what we've heard and chord-based at first. This section ends at 5 minutes and 15 seconds on a chord that's allowed to fade. Then a stormier section comes in. Uh, Sudbin holds all of this together well and brings thunder for the fortissimos. Yes, the hammer of Thor comes down when there's ever a fortissimo marking in a score that Sudbin's playing. I love the sound, really. Repsodically, this theme ends and a more chorale-like theme comes in for the ending. It's quiet and somber, but don't fall asleep. The piece ends with two surprise fortissimos. Don't worry, you won't fall asleep. <laughs> anyway, tracks four and five are from um, Tchaikovsky's uh, set of piano works called The Seasons, Opus 37. Now, this isn't a thematic work. They're short pieces that um, Tchaikovsky wrote for his publisher at the end of every month for an entire year. And he was trying to capture the uh, feeling of the time. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's as far as the thematic material goes. So we get track four, we get number 11, which is November. And this is a troika, which I guess is a sleigh ride. This is a charming miniature that starts quietly and charmingly and blooms in the middle into a romantic figure. At the minute seven second mark, a Russian peasant dance is heard, at least the way Sudbin performs it. When the opening returns at a minute and 51 seconds, it has arpeggiated decoration in the high end. Very beautiful. Track five is number six in the set, which is June. And this is a Barcarolle, so the Venetian boat song. This is one of Tchaikovsky's most familiar works. It starts slowly and has a catchy melody once it starts moving. The middle section starts at a minute and 27 seconds and picks up in tempo. It's beautifully shaped. Track six and seven is simply called Two Pieces, Opus 10. Now, this is probably why these pieces aren't really that famous, because they're called things like Two Pieces. <laughs> so the names are easily forgettable, even if after you hear the music isn't. Uh, number one is a nocturne. Uh, this is track six. Um, it's introspective and has a simple opening melody. The whole piece has a melancholy to it, despite the agitation of the middle section, which features a slow, tension-building crescendo on a chord-based theme. It has a pretty ending with the figure rising up in the piano and out of earshot. Track 7 is number 2, Humoresque. It's a rustic Russian dance, and of course we're in good hands with Sudbin here. He gets the rhythm of the Russian dances very well. He has an inbuilt sense of how these rhythms and accents should sound, um, which is also why I want to recommend that you hear his um, interpretation of Tchaikovsky's first piano concerto, because the third movement is a Russian dance too. And since the piece is so popular, most people don't give it that dance rhythm. Uh, Emile Gilles did, um, and uh, Sudbin does too. He gets, like, he gets that real kind of dip to the rhythm that makes it sound dance-like. There's a brief middle section that slows the dance down, but then it resumes at the end. Track 8 is a nocturne, often heard in its arrangement for cello and orchestra, but the original is for the solo piano. There's a gentle, catchy melody to start the piece off, then at the beginning of the first minute, more agitated rhythm comes in, accompanying a rising theme. The gentleness returns at the end. Tracks 9 through 11 might be the, uh, well, I guess Romeo and Juliet is going to be the highlight of the album, but um, the highlight of the original solo piano pieces on the album are probably these tracks 9 through 11. Three pieces from Tchaikovsky's 18 Pieces, Opus 72, written in 1893, the year of um, Tchaikovsky's death. These were uh, Tchaikovsky's last works for solo piano. So here we get track nine, number three, Tendre Reproche, so tender reproaches. They're all short, and there are a lot of harmonic ideas compressed into these 
Jesus. The beginning of this one is lyrical and gentle, while the middle has more of a manic rushing feel. The more soothing opening returns afterwards. Track 10 is number 16 in the set, Vals a Cinq Temps. Now, what that means, it's a waltz in 5-8 time, and that's a really weird time signature for a waltz. <laughs> The eighth notes begin the unit of measure here, make the swirling rhythm seem quick and manic. Sudbin plays it with some volume. He can get a hard present tone when he wants to, and there's a jolting forte chord at the end. Track 11 is number 14 in the set, Chant Elegiac, so Elegiac song. Softer attack here, and it's got an Elegiac tone. There's a melody, but the ear is drawn by the lower, darker chords in this performance. They resonate beautifully. The piece becomes more agitated as it goes on, and we're given a demonstration of Sudbin's various levels of touch and textures of sound. The piece has a lot of sudden dynamic changes and pauses as in a romantic work, and Sudbin plays this in an appropriate romantic style with generous but sensitive use of the sustain pedal. Listen in the third minute. His playing really is a model of what romantic piano playing should sound like so like Grovener, but they're a little different actually the two of them track 12 waltz from the sleeping beauty another of um tchaikovsky's ballets um this was from 1889 and it's for piano four hands so bella sudbin is back in the role of primo this was arranged by rachmaninoff and then sudbin sort of touched that up for him and his daughter this has a big full sound from the four hands in the introduction and a booming chord just before the waltz theme um, which will get everybody's attention. <laughs> it's played at uh, fast speed, the waltz is, and has a gentle touch to it. Subin's accents always give a jolt. Father and daughter characterize the piece well, and the rhythm is vibrant. Huge chords at the end. Okay, here we go. We're up to Romeo and Juliet, an orchestra work that I really like. All right, well, the piece was composed in 1869, and it was revised twice. So this is the third version of the piece, uh, composed in 1880. And it's arranged by Sudbin himself. The piece is um, one 17-minute-long continuous piece of music, and um, it tells the story of Romeo and Juliet, as in the um, the uh, Shakespeare play. So, track thirteen is the beginning, Andante ma non tanto, quasi moderato, and it starts with a religious chorale. And um, this is um, these tone poems tell a story. So when we hear a religious chorale, we should be thinking of religion, and that indicates uh, Friar Lawrence, um, who helped. Um, Romeo and Juliet get married and was going to help them escape from Verona, but uh, uh, Romeo thinks Juliet is dead and kills himself, and then Juliet kills herself, and the whole plan doesn't work, <laughs> except that uh, I guess there's peace in Verona between the two warring families at the end. Anyway, Friar Lawrence here is telling the story of the doomed lovers through this chorale. It comes up well on the piano and more obviously as a chorale than it does in the orchestral version, because you can just hear the chords very clearly. There's some appealing pianistic colors in it. The harp arpeggios also fit the piano well. You can hear them at 126. The real action doesn't start until bar 112, which is going to be the next track. I've always felt the orchestral version kept us waiting for the first swashbuckling theme too long. And in the piano version, it feels even longer, though the lead up to it at uh, 350 on track 13 is pretty exciting, with Sudbin producing loud, solid tone. Okay, track 14 is where we reach bar 112, and right away we hear the first very famous theme, the sword fighting theme, instantly recognizable on the piano, and the arpeggios in the high end of the piano are effective and sound great on the recording. 
Sudbin has a gorgeous light touch as well. The syncopated chords don't come across as excitingly as they do in the orchestral version. They're, there's just more room for flexibility there. In spite of that, though, we're hearing some great piano playing here. At the 2 minute and 8 second mark, we hear the famous love theme. It doesn't quite light my fire the way the orchestra version does. The orchestra version is just like oozing passion all over the place. You gotta clean that stuff up after you hear this. Anyway, I really think the colors and force of the orchestra is necessary to put that theme across. The melody is appealing on the piano though, of course, it's a great melody. Subin's writing and playing of the orchestral accompaniment for the themes is Listian at times. His touch is ideal for putting this across. Track 15 starts from bar 275, and here we're led back outside the bedroom to the streets of Verona. We eventually, I should say the balcony, <laughs> the bedroom. I'm thinking of the movie too much. They don't actually get into the bedroom in the play. Anyway, they're only teenagers after all. We eventually get back to the sword fighting theme with lots of feints and parries in the orchestral accompaniment, usually in the form of light upward arpeggios in the high end. This morphs back into the love theme at 328, more grand now, with a lot of uh, Listian additions in the accompaniment in this piano version. Rushing figures follow, building up tension to the love theme again. The biggest buildup arrives at its target at uh, 507. We suddenly hear the sword fighting theme again at 538. Very impressive handling of the rhythmic material. And what I've always interpreted as the fatal sword thrust where either Tybalt kills Mercutio or Romeo kills Tybalt occurs in the dissonance on the theme at 615, an impressive fortissimo sound at the end of the track. In the orchestra version, you can kind of tell when this happens because there's this ugly bass note that's really discordant with the rest. I think it indicates that someone has been stabbed. Anyway, bar 489 is where track 16 begins. It has a rumbling bass end of the piano. There's a bit of a funeral feeling at the beginning and uh, soft arpeggios in the first minute, which sound austere and somber. I'd guess this is Juliet hiding out and taking the potion that's supposed to... Actually, no. Juliet actually stabs herself. Romeo takes the potion when he finds what he thinks is Juliet's dead body. Oh, no, it's Juliet hiding out and taking the potion that's supposed to make her appear dead. After this, we get to the ending figure, which features bass rumbling and impressive chords in the higher end. But again, the orchestral effect can't be matched. The entire transcription and performance are well worth hearing, even though this made me want to go straight to the orchestral, uh, the original <laughs> orchestral version. Anyway, that's the end of the album. And Sudbin's fortes are really jolting. This is something you're going to remember from this recording. It's so pristine, too. It's almost a perfect example of pianist and sound engineer producing a perfect piano recording. The piano compositions on this recording don't get enough of an airing in the concert world, as Sudbin mentions in his booklet note, which is both personal and useful, and need to be heard more. There's so much more than mere salon pieces, as one would think, due to their short length. I personally would recommend people hear the uh, 18, or even perform, the 18 pieces, uh, Opus 72, because I think they're probably pretty special, the rest of them as well. Sudbin's tone hardens a lot on Fortes, but he does get a different, more cushioned sound when he plays at lower volumes. Uh, this music, some familiar and some that should be, is well worth hearing, and this is some great piano playing as well, as we've heard throughout the entire classical section. Yeah, amazing technique, passionate interpretation, and really powerful playing, but with yeah. lots of finesse. 
I enjoyed Sudman's arrangements and the forehand pieces, uh, kind of a neat way to hear music that's familiar in a different way. And the recording itself is clear, but very full sounding and not much room noise at all. When you listen to this, you'll feel that the speakers actually become the instrument and it's mm. right in front of you. Very clean sound. Really yeah. Amazing. It has a real body to it, I thought. Great recording. All right. So that's it for classical for today. And it was very exciting. Yeah. Uh, you picked mm. uh, three winners there. And yeah. like we said, <laughs> all big name composers that everyone knows. But I think these interpretations and performances are well worth yeah. making Big name you, pianists uh, as well, yeah. for the most part. Yeah, yeah. big name pianists. and Play Playing on big time labels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's all big. It's all big. Well, Beast is a more independent label than Deutsche Grammophon and Decca, but right. nevertheless. We're going to have a few diversions then in comparison in the jazz uh, tonight, but we're going to start out swinging because yeah. everyone loves swinging piano. <laughs> I've said some strange things in the past. Who, who do we listen to? Uh, Joe Alterman. Right. I think I said, if you don't like Joe Alterman, you don't like jazz. And, yeah. Uh, I remember with Joe Alterman, you said that uh, he was going to bring America together. Did I, I don't, oh, no, I think that was somebody else. <laughs> no, it was him. It was that, okay. I remember it was specifically him because you had said that uh, you gave a quote by uh, Biden and yeah, Trump yeah, about right. him. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, this year we heard Christopher Lucas Wilson trio, Solemn Moments. And I really love that uh, great swinging piano. And so we're going to start with something really swinging tonight. Can I just say before you get into this, I would go further. I'd say if you don't like Joe Ultimate, you just don't like life. <laughs> That's true. It's hard not to like that. Swing and life are kind of related, I think. You know, and I think you're going to really like this recording too. And we're going to be in Europe with European pianists, but we're going to have, interestingly, a couple of American drummers uh, thrown in the mix. Okay. And it's starting out with the Gabriel Latchin Trio with yeah. his recording Viewpoint. This came out April 21st, and it's on Alice Jazz, that's A-L-Y-S, jazz label. Now, Lachin's a London-based pianist and composer. He started out as an in-demand sideman. Back in 2016, Christian McBride picked him as an accompanist for a event in London's Wigmore Hall. And he's also played with a lot of other names. Uh, one name we really like was Ronnie Cooper, who passed mm. away uh, recently. As a teenager, he was introduced to the piano by his grandmother, and he was turned on to jazz by the playing of Oscar Peterson. I remember that. And then he followed an academic career to start and graduating with honors, uh, first class honors in economics from Edinburgh University. After uh, playing on the jazz scene there, he moved to London to study jazz, piano at the Guildhall School of Music. And, well, his musical mentors included Aaron Goldberg, Peter Martin, and pianist David Berkman, who I got to see play in Kyoto right here with mm. the saxophonist Tim Armacost, and also guitarist Peter Bernstein. Uh, his recordings, if you want to check some other ones out, introducing... Gabriel Lachin Trio, 2016, 2019, The Moon and I, and 2020, I'll Be Home for Christmas. So we we're looking forward to checking that one out for this year's Christmas season. It's yeah. always good to have a swinging piano Christmas. Swing, swinging Christmases are the best Christmases. We should have a swinging Easter, too, I feel. I don't know. 
This is what he says about this album. Quote, for some years I have wanted to present an album of my own compositions. Viewpoint felt like the right time to take this creative step, both musically and personally. It is a collection of songs which captures this moment in my artistic journey. All 11 pieces represent or have been colored by my own experiences and this chapter of my life, unquote. So all the compositions are his originals, latching on piano. Jeremy Brown on bass. Uh, he's a UK bassist who studied at the Royal Academy of Music, and now he's a professor of electric and acoustic jazz bass. And we've got one of the most swingingest, swingy drummers out there, Joe Farnsworth. Oh, yeah. In the trio. So that's going to help things along here. We're going to start out with a tune for track one called Says Who? Question. And the notes say it's a piece inspired by George Gershwin's But Not For Me. Well, Farnsworth gets it going on the drums, and I guess the structure is similar in the, to the melody of the Gershwin tune. It's 32 bars with two halves of 16 measures that start out the same way. Uh, Lachin swings the happy melody. Check out the cool rhythmic change-up with bass on beats 4 and 2 in measures 13 to 16. Uh, the ending melody and chord changes are a little different, and it reminds me of a line from that uh, Tad Dameron's tune, If You Could See Me Now. It's like, I think you'd be mine again. It's the, <laughs> that little melodic phrase that just stuck in my head. And then Latchin gets into his solo. A really good building ideas with little rhythmic phrases, all swinging smartly with lightly punctuated left-hand chords and some bluesy repeated riffs and trills. Brown has a solo with good snap too. You can hear the strings really slapping away on there and nice melodic phrases for a bass solo. Uh, Latchin and Farnsworth trade eights for a round before a final go around the melody. Great swinging start to the recording. Track two is called Prim and Proper, and it's dedicated to Latchin's young daughter, uh, who's nicknamed Primrose. Uh, this one has a relaxed medium groove to it, 32-bar AABA structure, and a very classy-sounding melody. There's a fun bass and left-hand piano answering line in the second measure, and the B section has a fun rhythmic change-up with Farnsworth mixing it up on the cymbal centers and drum rims, and some bluesy stop-time piano phrases. Brown gets a thick, chugging walk going for Latchin to start his solo. It's a great relaxed feel with Farnsworth ride cymbals, and Latchin digs in with a mix of fluid, boppy phrases and rhythmic bluesy nuggets. Brown has a meaty-sounding bass solo here with a lot of rhythmic variety, and they pick up the melody from the B section, add a few final phrase repeats on the final A section, and ended up with some play over a slightly ominous descending bass and chord figure to Farnsworth's last word. Track three is A Mother's Love, and this is written for the birth of Latchin's second son, Oscar. Mm. It's named after his piano hero. And, well, a very pretty ballad with a melody that moves with the chords so you can really focus on Latchin's rich voicings. Another 32-measure melody, A-A-B-A. The B section gets bluesy and then has a nice contrasting harmonic surprise in the fifth measure. Latchin continues on with the solo, showing off a delicate touch here and with lots of ringing notes. Brown has a steady bass with good fills, and Farnsworth is light with tight brushwork. They come back to the melody for the final A section and end with a little coda section that has space for some final pretty rubato chords. Track four, Train of Thought, 
And I think this one gets inspiration from Ahmad Jamal's playing. Uh, it's very fun and funky. Lachin starts it out with a left-hand ostinato bass line for eight measures, then bass and clicky drums join in for another round of that. The downbeat notes are anticipated, throwing you off nicely <laughs> on the rhythmic feel. I think we've got 32 measures of melody here, with the final eight-measure section getting some fun stop time and rhythmic play on descending figures. They get the ostinato rolling again into a funky rhythmic piano solo. Lachin takes repeated figures higher and higher, gets bluesy licks, trills, rolling figures, all great stuff in this solo. Uh, another funky run through the melody and a little vamp out. Uh, Farnsworth has great subtle and light fills and textures all through this tune. Track 5's A Stitch in Time, and speaking of Farnsworth, he gets this one going with some snappy snare brushing and amazing work straight through the tune again. Uh, it's a happy melody with repeated rhythms that build up tension, 32 measures, A-A-B-A, -A, really fun syncopated repeated ringing bass notes from Brown on the B section. The melody here has a kind of hesitated rhythmic movement, but out of the solo break when Latchin gets started, the train is full speed ahead over Brown's super fast bass walking. Lachin impresses with light and darting boppy phrases of melodic ideas in his solo here, and Farnsworth gets a speedy solo with great snare work and accented hits. They pick it up with the final B and A sections of the melody to a little extended ending, and Farnsworth lets the train run out of steam <laughs> in a fun yeah, I enjoyed that at the effect end. a lot. Yeah, yeah. Pretty cool. I mentioned that as well. Yeah. Track six, Bird in the Hand. It's a relaxed, effortless, swing-feeling tune. A happy melody over cool, snappy, synced left hand and piano bass figures. AABA 32 measures. Great groove with hi-hat and rim clicks from Farnsworth. Lachin's solo here has a great sticky kind of hesitation in the phrasing that sounds super relaxed, and he also plays very classy ornamental figures in it. Uh, Brown gets a melodic bass solo here as well. Track 7, Omito. I guess that's the myth in Portuguese, uh, dedicated to the memory of the Brazilian guitarist and composer, Joao Gilberto. A super rhythmic four-measure piano start, and then a pulsing samba groove with Brown's bass. The form is a little interesting. There's an eight-measure A section twice. Uh, the second time, the last measure has some more interesting chords. Then a short four-measure kind of bridge section before the A again. Nice dancing cymbals and tom work from Farnsworth. Lachin finds a lot of melodic ideas in his solo with a rhythmic excitement. It's fun to listen to his left-hand rhythms on this one. Farnsworth gets a solo focusing on tom work, but there's a lot of other stuff going on that makes it sound like he's got another arm or two attached to it. What's <laughs> <laughs> more around the melody uh, to wrap it up. Track eight, Mr. Walton, Cedar Walton, that would be the great pianist, an eight measure section with descending rhythmic chord and figures, and then a contrasting section with lighter melodic piano figures and chords over a chugging bass. Nice rim clicks and fills from Farnsworth underneath that. Those two sections repeat, and then Lachin is off on a solo, capturing the light bluesy funkiness of Walton's playing. There's some thick chords too, and a nice touch on the phrasing and some fun rhythmic play as well. Uh, they close it out with the melody ending on the second rhythmic section. Track 9 is called Rest and Be Thankful, a wonderful piano and bass ostinato figure for an 8-measure intro over super soft snare textures from Farnsworth. Then this tune has really interesting contrasts of ringing chords over the straight beat feel of the ostinato for 8 measures, and then chugging swing for 4 measures with longer 12-measure swing sections too. So you get this kind of 8, 4, 8, 
12848 pattern going on. I thought it was going to be a, like a repeating 32 measure pattern, but I'm not sure. Uh, even I listened to it a couple times. As Lachin's tasty soloing over the section goes along, they keep it over the swing feel throughout. Ringing chords, agile little phrases, bluesy lines. The final reprise of the melody has just two measures of the swing before the final ostinato section. Anyway, it's a very fun and atmospheric tune. Track 10 is called Just the Ticket. An eight-measure drum intro from Fonsworth takes us into a calypso feeling. It's an AABA structure, kind of like rhythm changes, but with a different B section. Uh, the last two measures of the A section are left for Farnsworth to fill in the melody, and the B section pushes with upward modulations. A playful solo from Latchin, and midway it gets a little transition section to a break and a transformation to full-on swing. Farnsworth gets to trade fours for a while, and they bring back the calypso feel for the final A section, and then a fun little ending. And the final track, a song for Herbie, I guess you can guess who that is, Herbie yeah. Hancock, uh, a ringing eight-bar piano intro for a waltz feel here. It's dreamy and modal. The melody is 32 or maybe 40 measures. I'm not sure about the final rhythmic section of it, if it's supposed to be a transition. Uh, light ringing cymbals from Farnsworth throughout and little texture fills, flowing lines and ringing chords from Latchin in his solo. And they go through the melody again with a ringing outro like the intro for a slowed ending. And I like the slowed ending of this one, too. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. So you got timeless swinging piano played with flair and class from Latchin, creative solos with great phrasing and sensitive touch, all original music here that sounds familiar and fresh at the same time, mostly happy melodies, but some bluesy and moody twists. It's usually swinging hard, but there's enjoyable rhythmic variety with some Latin funky and calypso feels too. Brown has deep and steady bass, melodic solos, and Farnsworth gives great driving swing and subtle textures underneath everything. So if you don't like this, <laughs> I don't think you're going to like anything. Right. Well, up there like with Joel Ultimate, right? Anyway, yeah, for me too, well, I certainly liked this, as you know, as you would imagine. One of the reasons is because I liked all of his influences and he's kind of, you know, naming tracks and sort of playing with a lot of their sort of... um type of um you know figures and i really enjoyed that a lot and swings it's light on the evidence of this album i think the british save all their happiness for jazz because i always hear this really cheerful great swing rhythms in jazz we've heard a lot of really great swinging jazz from the uk in the past yeah. few episodes yeah yeah and I, I mentioned that as well yeah this is this is a really style i called this album stylish classy and yeah. uplifting the trio sounds so enthusiastic and they're playing. And I didn't know that it was Joe Farnsworth on the drums because I do like him a lot and he swings really hard. It really comes out on the recording, their um, enjoyment and enthusiasm. Uh, the rhythm is vibrant and as a result, and I really like the Latchin's playing himself. He's subtly inventive and it becomes obvious when he solos at length as he does on tracks like uh, Rest and Be Thankful and Just the Ticket. Mm -hmm. Those two really solos really stood out for me. And yeah, we mentioned the uh, Christmas album. I'm going to have to hear that. Yeah, now. it's going to be a cheerful swinging Christmas. Be yeah. first on the list of things to listen to for right Christmas. That'll be November 23rd for me because that's the first right. day that Christmas music is allowed in my yes. house. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right, well, take that swing and put it in a box because you're not going to need it for this next recording. <laughs> But you are going to have a lot of other very interesting rhythmic things happening. And this is a turns out to be a really good contrast in programming. And I really enjoyed this album, found it fascinating. This is by the Russian pianist Igor Yakovenko. 
and his recording Hyper Focus, and this is on Rainy Day Records, also came out April 21st. The description of the album, which has all original compositions by Yakovenko, and also the name, is based on the idea of developing the depth and the music, but not the volume of it, concentrating on a small amount of information and endless listening. This minimalist approach to jazz helps the listener to focus deeply on one emotion and explore and feel it as much as possible. That's quoted from the notes. So Yakovenko is a composer and also obviously a pianist. He graduated from the Aerospace University. So he was an engineering student first, but the notes say it pushed him to overcome the isolation of the musical worlds. And then he went on to study at the Moscow Conservatory at the Department of Historical and Modern Instrumental Performance. And he also received an improvisational degree from a different academy. And he's got these different classical schools of piano and harpsichord in his background and then combined with jazz. And the trio are Russian musicians living in Italy. He's also written an opera called Guilty for the Stanislavsky and Nemirovich Danchenko Theater. And he's got five albums on the Fancy Music label Mm. as well. And so now residing in Italy with these other Russian musicians here. And we've got Makar Novikov on double bass and Sasha Mashin on drums. And these guys have played with some big names, uh, Clark Terry, Jimmy Heath, Kenny Barron, uh, Johnny Griffin, Lou Tabak, and Gary Smilin, and uh, also Alex Sipiagin. So a lot of jazz experience here. And they're going to need it to play Yakovenko's music because this, <laughs> um, this was a real big challenge to uh, figure out what's going on here. But I really enjoyed it. It starts with track one called Opening. And Mashin kicks it off with a drum fill. There's an eight-measure intro with a repeating heavy piano rhythmic minor chord feel. It's a straight rock beat. I say eight measures, but you could count this at half or double time. So it's got an A-A-B-A structure with the first section of even chiming melody notes over left-hand intervals in the piano. So say eight or 16 measures, however you count it, a half or double time. It repeats, and then the left hand turns to more rippling triplet-like figures. The bass is mostly static, throbbing figures just changing with the modal harmony. The B section modulates and becomes light with a similar melody phrase and pretty piano fills over some more snappy bass lines and fills and light cymbals. Then back to the heavy A again with more accented and heavy left hand figures. It lightens for Yakovenko's piano solo with a snappy bass rhythm now from Novikov. Yakovenko's solo is interesting, ringing in the upper register with good harmonic exploration into and around the modes. He gets bluesy tinges and a lot of rhythmic variety, including some dazzling ringing triplet figures. It gets heavier in the drums and Yakovenko works up the harmonic tension with a machine gun repeated note with slow intervals working around it, more speedy lines, and then some high ringing chords before a reset with the intro idea into another melody round to a final ringing note. I liked the insistent rhythmic energy in this tune and Yakovenko's harmonic explorations in his solo. Track two, I don't know what this means. It's Kara Dag. Couldn't tell you. Yeah, I don't know. Novikov gets this started on the bass with interval and repeated syncopated note figures. Yakovenko joins in with the bass on the eighth measure, 
and adds a ringing chord melody on top. The constant syncopated feel is unique, providing the drive. Mushin is adding light cymbal subdivisions and fills. I'm not sure of the structure here, but there's an eight measure A section we hear twice, a modulated B section twice, and then a final eight measure section of mostly the bass and left hand figures, which Yakovenko picks up out of going into his solo. Here, the constant interval and repeated idea changes into leaner bass lines of ringing intervals and the feel lightens up. Yakovenko's improvised melodies manage a mix of lyrical phrasing and snappy figures, really nice flowing high register lines with little falling cascades, and interval ideas over heavy ringing left hand chords. The piano solo ends in a final ringing chord, and Novikov gets a bass solo next. Speedy, snappy lines with lots of rhythmic variety. He's got a very exact sense of pitch in his bass playing, and he works the end of the solo back into the original rhythmic interval figures, and they go around the melody sections again. Mashin is providing exciting fills underneath this time through, and the final section is extended a bit to a slightly slowed down ending. Rhythmically interesting stuff going on here, and a really energetic piano solo. Track three, <laughs> I like this title, Don't <laughs> Ask... Yakubovich. I like this one too. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what. It must have a story to go with it. Uh, this starts as a ballad with a slow, even rhythmic movement. The harmonic movement is really unique, and Yakovenko embeds a lot of the melody line in chords. Sometimes the left hand is doing arpeggiated accompaniment, and the bass is often moving in sync with him on the beat. Nice bass harmonic fills too. Around the 14th measure, you'll be surprised by some rhythmic hiccups in the phrasing. It seems to be a 20 measure construction. Novikov gets a solo next, ringing and rhythmic with good high register tone. He gets into some interval figures that Yakovenko picks up on, giving things a subdivided triplet feel. There's a pause and then things are back to the even feel uh, for Yakovenko's solo. A soft and fluid touch on high register melodic ideas. Mashin is working textured brush things underneath everything. Next, the even rhythmic push continues in the bass, but with a skip. Yakovenko adds rhythmic repeated note ideas, and Mashin gradually works up drum fills over that with accented hits. Suddenly, Yakovenko leads in with a line into new improvisations, and the rhythmic feel shifts into a kind of 6-8 feeling groove. Then Yakovenko has a lot of fun rhythmic play here with both hands, finding nice melodies too. It quiets and slows to a pause, to reset to a short six-measure reprise of the melody to finish it. <laughs> this song goes through a lot of transfigurations and mm. uh, different uh, rhythmic feels. Yeah, at this point also, the uh, the whole sound of the album changes. It becomes more acoustic, whereas the first two tracks were kind of more electric, so it was kind of a, a shock, too, mm. for me, the whole yeah. change, of, change of tone. And we've got the title track here, Hyper Focus, and... This one <laughs> starts with snappy bass and clicky drums to get this going in a cool 7-8 groove. It's got an inquisitive minor melody that Yakovenko handles with punctuated left-hand chords. Check out the rhythmic figures in interaction with the bass after the 16th measure. Wow. Novikov comes out of the tricky rhythms with a snappy, precise bass solo. Bass and piano get a little groove wrapped together for a transition to Yakovenko's piano solo. The bass figures below are throbbing, but he keeps things smooth and flowing over the tricky meter, working into some cool two-handed synced up lines before the end. It simmers down a bit back into the melody with some clicky fills from Mashin underneath. Piano and bass vamp out on a groove for Mashin to fill out, and then Yakovenko adds a repeated note on top of the left-hand pattern. He stops that, 
And then the vamp and drums go on a bit more to a stop. Tricky stuff. You had better be hyper-focused if you want to try to play this tune. Track five is Elegy number two. This one starts with bowed bass over rippling rhythmic piano for 15, 16 measures uh, to get it started. Then Yakovenko takes over the melody while Novikov gets back to plucking the bass. As it goes along, the unique feature is how the piano and bass sync up with pulsing syncopated figures. Yakovenko has rhythmic left-hand ideas underneath that are matching up to that, and Mashin keeps it light with brushes underneath. The push of the figures dissipates into a bass solo from Novikov, both rhythmic and melodic, and Novikov switches to snappy figures to support Yakovenko's solo, and Manchin is on sticks now with sharper hits. Yakovenko keeps a relaxed feel in his solo here, even when working through some speedy triplet and ringing chord ideas. It gets a music box kind of quality to it. Then it comes back down soft into the bowed bass and into the melody with the insistent piano and bass rhythmic figures to the ending. Track six is called No Touch. Arpeggiated bass and piano make an eight-measure opening, and Yakovenko chimes a pretty melody over the top of the arpeggios. Mashin is freed up to add cymbal and snare decorations. The arpeggios transform to a less busy bass line with a pulse, and Yakovenko has a flowing solo with lines of some engaging harmonic dissonances. The bass field transitions again through intervals back into the arpeggios and chiming spacious melody over Mashin's skittering fills. Yakovenko adds some dissonances into the high ringing chords and it comes to a stop on an unresolved chord. It's pretty in a unique way and kind of engaging. And we're going to end up with track seven, Foreboding. And a foreboding time signature here indeed. <laughs> Yakovenko starts it out solo with very unique rhythmic piano chords and bass notes. See if he can figure it out. It's alternating six beat and seven beat measures. I don't know how you would notate it. Is it six, eight, and then seven, eight? I'm not sure. Uh, bass and drums join in. Novikov has some really cool bass lines in this. The modal harmony changes are interesting, and there are little broken up melody phrases on top of the busy chords. Yakovenko gives the bouncy subdivided chords a rest for his solo, and things thin out, but the bass is snapping back great under him with locked in tightly in, in uh, Mashin's drum figures. Interesting quick turning solo lines and phrases keeping things locked into the groove and some unexpected harmonic twists. He builds up punctuated chords underneath some ringing interval ideas and then brings back the original bouncing chords for a bit. The feel in the drums stretches a bit here and then the piano rings out before getting back into the rhythmic melody into a section of rising bass and left hand piano figures that Mashin does some soloing underneath. Yakovenko adds wave of piano as it becomes more amorphous and slows to an ending. It's an adventurous recording, challenging to figure out but enjoyable to listen to. Yakovenko has a strong sense of rhythm driving all of his compositions and the meters and feels are interesting. The harmonies are complex and sometimes surprising, mixing in lots of modal movement, but Yakovenko has a strong melodic sense both for compositions and improvising. He can do a lot with minimal building blocks in the compositions, as hinted in the description, and he can play fluid solo lines with a soft touch over very tricky meters and keep them tight at the same time. I enjoyed Novikov's bass grooves a lot. They have a lot of snap and help you navigate through the tricky meters. And Mashin has a lot of finesse in his playing that works well with Yakovenko's style. So this is jazz with a lot of classical and progressive rock ideas woven into it in a unique and inventive fashion. 
Inventive is right. I actually found this record to be a bit puzzling, but I warmed to it like more as it went on. Mm. It kind of it took time. You mentioned progressive rock, and I heard that like right away in the first two dun, tracks, and I was dun, dun, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. yeah, that rhythm, yeah, yeah. And I was thinking it was going to all be like that, but then, like I mentioned earlier, suddenly, like in track three, it, it becomes acoustic, and there are a lot of different influences on this. You hear a lot of like studio production in the beginning too, whereas that kind of. It, it sounds more live in the in the later tracks as well. Uh, the piano playing is, is really, really busy. It kind of reminded me a little bit of um, Fergus McCready that we heard. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Remember last year? Except that he, was, yeah. he was really full on. This is a little different than that. But uh, the, uh, just the busyness put that in mind. Let's see. Yeah. Track three. Once we got to track three and we get to the acoustic sound, it has more like jazz and rock elements played side by side and sometimes even together. It was all really yeah. interesting. I wasn't counting rhythms. I was trying to figure out the, uh, you know, what this what the style was. Right. It was it was kind of a, a hard thing to do. Um, then we get to some jazzy uh, in track four. There's some classical sounding uh, material at the beginning of track five on the piano, and the entire album to me also had because I'm always thinking in classical terms in the back of my head at least and uh i feel like this record had kind of a darkness to light feel to it even though the last hmm. track is called foreboding <laughs> <You know? laughs> i don't know maybe the future doesn't look too bright but it's at that point it was a little brighter than hmm. at the beginning which is really heavy right the yeah the, the track foreboding it felt much lighter and more cheerful oddly enough uh than the dark and uh, foreboding opening which the tra- first track is called uh opening the opening yeah so I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know what to think about this. I mean, I, thought I liked it enough. Um, it uh, comes across, I felt like a calling card of all his different like styles. He's like, it feels like a, this is what we can do a kind mm. of album. It's not really what I look for in jazz, but it's certainly a good record. If this appeals, it's certainly, it's an adventurous listen too. So if you're listening, looking for an adventure, go for this. I will say this though, this record will probably stick in my mind. So I guess... You know, this whole like-dislike thing is kind of odd because sometimes a record will disturb you or a work of art and you're always thinking about it. And that might happen in this Hmm. case. You know, it was kind of an interesting album, an interesting listen. Yeah, I find it interesting on a lot of different levels. The compositions and the harmonies are really unique. And then, you know, you hear a lot of different rhythmic elements in Mm -hmm. jazz today. I mean, you have a lot of players that purposely don't you know, play in a swing style these days. And there's sort of uh, amorphous rhythmic jazz too that I find hard to really uh, get into. But here, on the other hand, we've got a lot of interesting other types of rhythms borrowing from rock music and things. And then these really tricky meters, Mm. they really pull off well and integrate with those interesting harmonic concepts. So I think he's got a unique style fashioned uh, for himself here. So I'm going to check out some more of his music and I want to hear what he does next. I was pretty intrigued by the uniqueness of it. Right. I, I know people who would like this a lot, actually. Yeah. I'll see if I can pass it on to them. All right. And for the third recording, a real young pianist here, uh, yeah. Alan Bartas, and the title is Born in Millennium. And the reason is because he was born in 2001, if you can believe wow. that. Uh, he's a Slovakian pianist. This is on Double Moon Records, came out April 21st as well. And well, he was born in Slovakia. He moved to Austria with his parents in 2012. And from 2014, he studied classical piano at the Church Conservatory in Bratislava and graduated in 2021. Uh, also in 
2018, he studied jazz piano at the Music and Art Private University of the City of Vienna with Oliver Kent. And well, already in his teenage years, he was performing with his own trio in uh, Slovakian and Austrian jazz clubs. And together with his father, Stefan Pista Bartos, he released the trio album Connectivity in 2021. And 2022, he's got a solo recording out called Solology. And well, I'm not sure where he is, uh, what he's doing now. I'm reading different articles about him. One says he got a two-year master's degree scholarship at the GEM Music Lab Private University in Vienna from a competition. But another article I read said he'll be attending the Manhattan School of Music in New York in September. So I'm not sure where he's going to. But uh, pretty impressive uh, start to a career here. And uh, this recording's got almost all of his own original compositions uh, with one standard done in a unique way. So we've got Alan Bardis on piano. As I mentioned, his father, Stefan Pistabardis on bass. David Hodek on drums on tracks one, five, and eight, and all the great Gregory Hutchinson on drums, uh, tracks two, three, four, and six. He's played with lots of uh, jazz greats. Jazz fans will know him well. Joe Henderson, Witten Marsalis, Joshua Redman, John Schofield. And we've got Cornell Fekete Kovacs on flugelhorn on three tracks. He's a Budapest-based composer, arranger, and trumpet player. So let's dig in here with the first original composition, track one, Option. There's a 16-measure intro of bass and left-hand piano lines with rhythms traced by cymbals and fills. The melody has a lot of synchronized, syncopated movement between the piano and bass, and lots of spaces for drum fills. I think it's an 18-measure section that repeats. Then there's a contrasting section that has piano figures that press forward in phrases into ringing chords for 26 measures. Things lighten up and get spacious for Barstus to start his solo. Uh, he builds up from simple phrases with a relaxed feel and delicate touch. He becomes more rhythmically insistent and adds a lot more percussive chords, rippling phrases, and trills. It gets really intense and the drums are exploding below, but they bring it down quietly as Bardis finishes his solo. Then we get an abbreviated form of the tune with only eight measures of intro, one time through the first section and then the contrasting longer section. Then there's a new section of tight syncopated bass and piano vamping uh, for some tight drum soloing around the kit to an exciting finish. It's an interesting composition and a big adventurous piano solo to get the recording going. Track two is Clio, and Kovacs joins this one on flugelhorn and takes the melody here. It's kind of airy, made of shorter phrases with interesting intervals over the soft piano chords. Bartis Sr. here is providing the steady pulse on bass, carrying the rhythm, freeing up the drums to make cymbal textures. The melody is 32 measures with a surprising skip in the rhythm of the 24th measure. Kovacs continues on soloing. Some cute staccato kisses from the flugelhorn get him going into more fluid lines. The drums and bass have more of a groove stepped up, and Kovacs finishes up with a trill, and Bardis is up next for a piano solo, which he starts out with some chord ideas, trickling and then ringing notes that kind of hang in space loosely before he gets more rhythmic, uh, still with a relaxed flow. And Kovacs returns for the melody, but with a different and earlier ending soon after that little rhythmic skip. Uh, a fresh and light-sounding tune. 
Track three is movements. The drums kick this one off, and you better start counting right there. Well, another seven-eighth tune. That's <laughs> twice in an episode. We're hearing wow. a lot of this time signature in re new recordings recently. Uh, they make a really cool groove out of this, though, with great snappy bass from Bardis Sr. and the drums together digging in. Uh, the piano melody is modal and ringing with chords. We hear an A-A-B-A-B form with a descending chord idea on the B section. And then there's a different, really percussive final section after that. And next, uh, Stefan Pistabatis gets a bass solo. And he has an interesting kind of ghostly tone here and really forceful attacks on speedy figures. Uh, next, a piano solo, really digging in with attacks from the start. A lot of energy here with forceful chords. And then he makes it suddenly light and wistful before we hear that percussive last section of the melody again and they keep that going for some more piano improvisations that get stuck on some percussive repeated notes and then the drums beat it out to a forceful ending track four is called four chick to korea uh, with the numbers four and two and Kovacs is back here for this cool tune. He blows the uplifting melody over really interesting bass and left-hand piano counterlines. It takes off on a swing with walking bass from the 11th measure. It's got a 22-measure length with an ominous dark minor turn at the 19th bar. It repeats with the same swing-feel switch, but it ends differently with a longer 30-measure length and more cool bass and left-hand piano figures. Kovacs solos next with good feel and articulation over the really swinging trio. It's a pretty long solo, but he doesn't run out of melodic ideas. Bartis Sr. has a bass solo next, really intense attacks, then an intense piano solo, huge percussive left-hand chords under searching right-hand melodic lines. I'd say Chick would approve of this performance, and Kovacs comes back for the melody sections, and the ending has a little fun hesitation to it. Track 5 is called Circumstances. This has a contemplative middle register melody in contrasting sections over a neat groove on the drums with great light snare work. There's a 16 measure melody section, eight measures of bass and left-hand piano rhythmic ideas, then 16 more measures of piano melody, and then 16 measures of the bass figures. There's a little hold in time that cleanses the palette before a piano solo, and Bartis gets to show off his touch here with varied dynamics, nice unhurried phrasing, and some chords floating in time to a soft ending. Piano and bass get a soft chord vamp uh, for the drums to do some tasty solo fills. And then we get one 16-measure section of the piano melody and then 16 measures of the bass rhythmic figures to finish it up. We're going to get our one standard tune, Irving Berlin's How Deep is the Ocean, but they give it a unique and uh, kind of open feeling with an even medium tempo beat. Kovacs is breezy on the melody, but the drums build below him. Bartis is up first with a surprising minor modal start for his solo. And then Bartis Sr. has ringing bass figures underneath that. And Bartis does a lot of harmonic exploration on the piano solo here, working his right-hand figures closely with chord ideas. There's one crazy triplet idea that he works down and then back up for fun. Kovacs makes a minor modal start as well for his solo, and then he builds up with little sassy phrases, some double time, and then a relaxed melodic kind of phrase focus. Uh, he ties back to the melody for another round and they continue on giving it a lifting and dreamy ending with some soft little flugelhorn kiss puckers in the articulation before piano and bass finish it. Track seven is called Lydia. It's a solo piano ballad piece. It has a rather classical feel to it at first, 
Bodice takes it to a lot of places from its sparse start into rubato sections of lush chords, forceful low chords, runs, and then more jazzy improvisations. It reaches a ringing climax of chords at about four and a half minutes, then resets to the beginning melody again. He creates some suspense before the ending with a descending line and then some shimmering two-hand high figures that you want to resolve but they just evaporate <laughs> instead. A very nice, pretty, and unpredictable piece. And we're going to finish up with Chances, track eight. A snappy, syncopated piano melody on this one with interesting harmonies. Ringing bass figures and dancing cymbals give it a loose but intense swing feel. The melody is 24 measures, and check out the cool final line with the bass. They go around again, and then it's off on a swing with walking bass for a piano solo. Really intense percussive playing on this one he's just killing the keys on the piano here mm. oh the drums adding light fills between ideas suddenly he lightens the piano chords and gets soft with rhythmic figures and then returns with intense driving lines the trio is really steaming as bardis works some rising figure ideas and then more with two hands together things come down for a pressing bass solo from bardis senior with some really speedy figures that alan echoes back to him neatly they go around the melody two more times, shaving off four bars from the first time around and then extending the ending the second time with some ringing piano chords and then the piano and bass line we heard back at the beginning of the first melody section in the song. And that's it. So at 22 years old, Bartis has some impressive talent, a modern sounding, unique original composition style and concept of playing. He plays with a strong intensity, almost scary sometimes, but he also has a light touch when he wants it. Inventive solos where he's comfortable locking in or doing more floating things over the grooves and a well-developed, interesting sense of harmony. Uh, Stefan Pistabartis, his father, seems to be the ideal bass player as a partner for him with matching familial driving attack to his lines. And the drums here, especially Hutchinson, has that mix of finesse and intensity for whatever the situation calls for. So let's see what this young fellow tries next he certainly has the talent yeah i gotta say he takes some uh, pretty adventurous excursions on the piano at this album now that i found out he was 22 i'm even yeah. more amazed by the record and he's got a traditional framework around that so it's kind of like adventurousness within kind of something more familiar mm. the album keeps uh i thought it kept to the traditional sound of jazz enough to anchor your ear and then the solos get into some interesting unexpected places with uh, rhythm and sometimes harmony and even figuration Expect the unexpected if you listen to this. I'm not going to call it quirky. It's a little too straightforward for that. But it does sort of perk up your ears with its juxtaposition of styles. And they're kind of piled up one on another at times. Hmm. I like the last track, Chances, the best uh, for its bright sound and appealing ideas. Bar just keeps pulling out um, ideas for his uh, solo. He's inventive and uh, he's, he's still studying. He's just going to go into some other... <laughs> completely yeah. other direction it's really a little mind-blowing really yeah he gets a variety of moods out and some of them are a little odd <laughs> i rather liked that too yeah so uh yeah it's a it's a it's an interesting listen let's say yeah i'm bursting with talent and yeah, uh, lots absolutely. of energy he, like mm. i said he's he's a real hard hitter with those yeah. chords i could just see the the piano <laughs> absorbing all the impact of those chords yeah, on this album, too, I also like the big, meaty uh, bass sound that the bassist yeah, uh, yeah. got, too. That was really cool. He was, like, really up front, and uh, I think he wants to, he's getting a he's, he's getting full value out of his instrument as well. Yeah. You know, I, I found that uh, 
that sort of aggression of attack, you know, father and son there, yeah. uh, it, it must be like a, a shared trait and uh, the styles work really, really well together. So that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm going to, I have only listened to a couple of tracks from his previous solo recording. So I want to check that out and see, cause I, I really enjoyed the solo piano piece here. I had no idea what was going to happen at any point mm-hmm. in that, but it was all very interesting development. So there you go. A wide variety in uh, jazz piano, all in a trio format here with a little bit of trumpet added to it. And they've got these great classical pieces done by fabulous pianists. And you uh, just can't go wrong with any of the music on tonight's program. And uh, yeah, we had a lot to say, I think, today. This is a, one of our longer, I think we're yeah. way past uh, two hours now, but uh, we've done longer than this in the past. Yeah. I don't know what we talked about back then, but... Uh, I'm not sure. We've had a couple of tighter, shorter episodes recently, so this one will stretch things out again. Yeah, as we, uh, yeah, as, we as we get better at this. Let's <laughs> All right. Well, before we check out of here, thanks to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo and those other music podcasts we mentioned at the beginning. At the end of this episode, there'll be little promos from them. So stay tuned and listen to that and do check them out. I think next week we've got what choral and organ as a theme. Yeah, um, I actually started listening to one of them today, the Fresco Baldi. It's I've got one organ working. The other ones are just two. Uh, pure choral. One is uh, Verdi choruses for the new Ricardo Chailly album of that with uh, the La Scala Orchestra. So that's chorus and orchestra from the Verdi operas. And then um, choral pieces by Erkis Ventur, a contemporary Estonian composer who I really like and uh, whose uh, composing is pretty adventurous. You're going to have to yeah, bring bring your best ears for this <laughs> <Okay>. one. <laughs> if you want to check those uh, recordings out, uh, as well as the jazz, I'm going to have, uh, we're going to have the godfather of Greek jazz. Oh, nice. And we'll tell you who that is next week. All right. If you, I should uh, tell us now because oh, people... Yeah, George Contraforest, as yeah. we found out. Because uh, if they're listening, then they'll want to. <laughs> <laughs> Latest uh, organ trio recording and a couple of new fresh releases from this month. Uh, one on Positone that we're just really excited about as well. Yeah, we both heard that one uh, already. It was a pretty exciting yeah. record. I'm going to have yeah, to great. sit down and listen to it seriously now, but I was just kind of casually listening to it earlier. With some uh, some of the top horn players as guests on it. Mm. So if you want to find out what those recordings are, shortly after this episode is published, I'll have the playlist up on Deezer and also a link to it on our Facebook page if you want to check those recordings out early. All right, I think we've talked enough, so... We have. I think my voice is going now. I'm, I'm starting to get that vocal fry that I hate so much <laughs> when I, yeah, that I actually hear on network news now. It's really yeah. crazy. These people pay millions. They <laughs> they have vocal fry. What is this nonsense? Yeah, no vocal fry. No vocal get me fry. out of here. I'm getting, I'm getting yeah. vocal fry. <laughs> All right. <laughs> get me off the air before my vocal fry sets in. <laughs> so that's been episode 115 of Adult Music, and we'll see you again next week for episode 116. Gerald Albright, Rhea Schneider, Charlie Hunter, Duke Robillard, Sean Jones, Walter Beasley, Steve Swallow. Something Came From Baltimore is a jazz, blues, and R&B podcast and radio show, and it's not really about Baltimore. Subscribe to the podcast and listen to your favorite artist or future favorite artist that Something Came From Baltimore and be a part of that Be More music scene. Joe Lovano, Jeff Coffin, Paula Cole, Denuso Makatani, Ann Passio, Chess Smith, Thumbscrew, mostly...
Hi, jazz fans. This is the founder and host of Neon Jazz, Joe Domino. It's both a weekly radio show and interviews with musicians from all over the world, like the Netherlands, New York City, and back to Kansas City, the home of Neon Jazz, covering the rich history and modern world of jazz in a fresh way, featuring interviews with the likes of Arturo Sandoval, Sonny Rollins, Maria Schneider, and countless others. Find our weekly show on Mixcloud. Subscribe to the interviews via iTunes and YouTube. We are Neon Jazz. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.